This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Good to have you along for the ride. Hope you're having a wonderful day. It's Thursday, which means it's time to get ready for uh, Friday. That's the rule, right? Thursday is a special day. It's a special day. It's the day we get ready for Friday. I think that was more about Saturday and Sunday. But, uh, who, you know, who's going to fight you on that one? We got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking with uh, America's preeminent First Amendment lawyer. And uh, at 80 years old, author of a new book, The Soul of the First Amendment. Interesting, interesting history, interesting insights into a lot of the problems that President Trump, uh, you hear a lot about with him, from tweeting to uh, all the leaks to the the rights and responsibilities of reporters with those people that they're uh, sourcing and citing. All of this um, is involved in the First Amendment, and our guest, Floyd Abrams, uh, has has fought long and hard um, for rights for everybody from journalists to just the average citizen. So we're going to be talking about... First Amendment again today um, in this first hour. We also, of course, will uh, get to some other headlines, empty news we call it, Matt Townsend News, plus um, some more fun with uh, just kind of the local headlines. But it's interesting. Apparently, President Trump, uh, the Europeans aren't loving him. Wrong. Okay. The Europeans love him. They just don't like him. Wrong. Oh, boy. It's a tough one. Apparently today, too, Comey will testify publicly about Trump's confrontations. Next week. Oh, it's going to be next week. Yeah. They're not doing all that today. That's too much. You got to spread this yeah. out. You got, you, well, you don't want to hurry the thing. Right. I mean, we want this Russia thing to go on forever. What would we talk about? Really, we'd have to talk about the Paris Accord and the Paris Agreements if the United States are going to be in the Paris Climate Agreements. But it's okay. We'll, we'll we'll go with Nicaragua and Syria, and just yeah. step away. Just yeah. Well, yeah. When you're in good company, right? <laughs> wow, it's interesting. Um, just a lot going on. So we'll get to all of those fun headlines. But first, to the local headlines around the country. What's going on, Terry? That we should be worried about. Gerald Jerry. DeLamuse was sentenced on Wednesday to more than seven years in prison for his role in organizing armed backers of Nevada's Nevada rancher Cliven Bundy after a standoff with U.S. agents in 2014. Remember that? They blocked yeah. a highway in kind of the Nevada, the, down there in that area. Um, he's the first person sentenced for the incident. Uh, DeLamuse has been in jail for almost 16 months, pled guilty last August to conspiracy to commit an offense against the U.S., as well as interstate travel, that's when they blocked the highway, okay. in, aid of, in, uh, in aid of extortion. In 2016, he also said he had traveled to Oregon to join the Ammon Bundy occupation of a federal wildlife refuge. Oh, he was up there, okay. So he was up there, too. Good. But uh, no one's been convicted of this. And you, the standoff, you had the federal officers... Yeah. Walking towards people that were all had automatic, automatic or semi-automatic rifles and standoffs. So, so no one really was convicted in Oregon either, no. right? And not yet. They're, not, they're still going through the process okay. there. So we'll, we'll have more news huh. from that. But I just find that interesting. 2014, now someone actually gets 
Yeah, so they it only took three years. Cops. Yeah, it's great. Uh, other news. People watched, read, listened, streamed, and posted more media than ever in 2016, but that consumption plateaued this year, according to data released uh, by uh, research firm Zenith. Globally, individuals on average spent 456 minutes each day consuming media. Last year, uh, that was last year, 2017, it's expected to decline slightly to 455. Oh, wow. So 455 oh. minutes of your day. Oh, good. Okay. That suggests we've reached peak media, but that's not the case when you look at the data by regions. North American median consumption is expected to increase by 1.8% this year to 612 minutes a day compared with 601 minutes last year. Wow. So we found another 11 minutes to uh, consume some media. How do we? That's 10 hours. Yeah. Mobile internet drove overall media consumption because, as it says here, it turned what used to be non-media activity, like talking to friends and family, into mm-hmm. a media activity on social media. Does anybody work? I don't know. Like, this is crazy. Who has 10 hours? Walk around here. There's lots of Facebook going on. Is there? People are messing with their phones. Yeah. Can't stand this Did stuff. you do a little spying yourself? What do you mean? Well, like a little reconnaissance yeah. work. Yeah, he did. He went and sat in our bullpen. You just got to walk through, and all the computers are right there. Everyone's well, face basically. I just know that that's one way to maybe, you know, figure out what's going on with the sound gather barrier. Data. Yeah, gather data. It's all good. Other news Megan Kelly's new show begins Sunday when Kelly, now with NBC, launches her news magazine program Sunday night with Megan Kelly. Wow. They spent really a lot, they spent a lot of money like testing that getting in committees and trying to figure out what what works, what doesn't work. So Sunday night with Megan Well, Kelly. is she still under certain restraints because it seems like she was the number one person at Fox. Fox has been tanking. Wasn't she number one or two at Fox? Number two, yeah. Uh, Fox has been tanking kind of ever since. It seems like if I owned the asset of Megyn Kelly's program, I would get it on the air as fast as I could. Well, she's been on the uh, no non-compete type of yeah. situation, and now so that's now ending. Can, okay, good. And NBC and Fox have been negotiating to end it early. Ah, uh, yeah, so, yeah. You got to get that. You got to get her out there. Start right now, it. right now, Kelly's in Russia. She's going to uh, interview uh, President Vladimir Putin huh. on stage at the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum. And if history is any guide, she feels like she's going to have some extended period of one-on-one discussion with him. Yeah. And um, he tends to go off on tangents at times. And so she wants to capitalize on that. Okay, and good. Her, she says her show won't be all politics. Good, but when you're sitting across from Putin, you gotta you gotta ask, gotta ask the questions. So How's Sunday, his friend Donald Trump? That's Sunday, and then what's interesting is she's gonna have her show through the summer Sunday nights. Then it'll go away because of NFL football, mm. and then her show will be uh, then her daily show will start in the fall, and then she'll have her daily show, and then her nightly show once football's over on Sunday nights. Wow! So she's she'll hopefully be able to figure all that out. That's kind of. You know, I, I have a feeling if she does well, they'll put her everywhere. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're paying her $17 million a year? Yeah. Yeah. They better pay ah, her everywhere. That's a little more than we got. Yeah. Ugh. That's more than a lot of baseball players get. That's right. She can't even catch. I no. Mean, no. I wonder how she hits. Her fastball is pathetic. <laughs> and finally, Matt, are you watching the NHL Finals? Mm, no. Did you know the NHL Finals are going on? Uh, yeah, I did. You did? Nashville... Uh-huh. And uh, is it Pittsburgh? It's Pittsburgh. Yeah. Job. Pittsburgh's currently up 2 nothing. You only knew Nashville because you watched the show Nashville. That's my favorite show. Yeah. 
But here's a story from Game 1 that was kind of okay. interesting. Yeah. It's kind of been playing out in more details that came out as the week has gone on. The Nashville Predators, Pittsburgh Penguins, NHL Finals. The Predator fans have a tradition of tossing a catfish on the ice during the playoffs. The <laughs> NHL Finals opened in Pittsburgh. Predator fan Jake Waddle drove to Pittsburgh, bought a $350 Game 1 ticket, and a really big catfish. But he bought the catfish in Tennessee because he says he wanted a Nashville oh, catfish no. because it's more original to yeah. throw one of our catfish, Absolutely. not one of their catfish. Throw your own, right? He sprayed the fish down with Old Spice cologne and threw it in a cooler to keep the smell down. He drove to his cousin's house outside of Pittsburgh on Hello, game ladies. night. <laughs> on game night, he filleted the fish, cut out half the spine, and ran over it with his truck. That made it easier to vacuum pack and conceal. He said, "No matter." Uh, he goes, uh, "Let's see. He, no matter how much I ran over it with my truck, the head was just too big." Yeah, it's big-headed. To hide catfish. the catfish, Waddle planned to stash the fish in his boots. The head, uh, the head made that impossible. So he created a catfish underwear sandwich. Regular drawers went on first, then the catfish, then a pair of compression shorts, wow. then a pair of baggy pants. Waddle, Waddle said uh, he's lucky that he's a bigger guy. He said skinny jeans just wouldn't yeah, have worked. Wouldn't have worked. Wouldn't no. have worked. No, Your no. catfish would be showing. During a stoppage in play, Waddle tossed the fish on the ice and was immediately detained by security. By Tuesday morning, Waddle had been charged with disorderly conduct disrupting a meeting, and best of all, possessing an instrument of crime. Catfish. As in the fish. Uh, a Nashville radio station is going to cover any fines he incurs. He's got plenty of Nashville area lawyers that are willing to help. Waddle, who was in the uh, undersell, of, probably the undersell of the playoffs, he called himself a dumb redneck with a bad idea. <laughs> it's a- Look at your man. Now back to me. Ooh, is this, oh, this, I, I hear Old Spice is going to hire him to do a new commercial. Hiding a catfish. He, he said he put on, as he called it, the underwear sandwich. You know, And stood around his in-laws to make sure they couldn't smell it. Yeah. He talked to him for like 20 minutes. Nobody could smell a thing. So he felt like he was good. He as go someone who's been on a liquid diet for a while, yeah. an, un- an underwear sandwich sounds pretty good right now. <laughs> Even a catfish underwear sandwich. I don't know why. Is that, mm. is that too much effort to throw something on the ice in yeah. Pittsburgh? Okay. But what an interesting tradition. And you know he will go down in history in oh, Nashville. Yeah. As He's a hero. This guy gave everything. Well, he'll go down. Oh, yeah. That's for sure. He did it for us. Boy, can you imagine? Is he married? I uh, didn't say. Because I'm going with no. <laughs> I'm going to bet he's single man. <laughs> because, A, you got a nasty old fish. Yeah. Stinking up with some Old Spice. Well, probably smelled good. Stuffed in your drawers. Right. Maybe that would fix the president's deviated septum. Um, okay, here's a crazy one for you. Yeah. Uh, apparently, um, Hillary Clinton, uh, his, her daughter Chelsea, uh-huh. said, <laughs> "Guess." Excuse me. Yeah, you're sorry. This is still happening. This is this is her latest speech. She with, gave a commencement over the weekend, yeah. and this happened. So oh, she's got a lot of the cough still. It's I think it's just the air. It's the air everywhere that she breathes because mm-hmm. she does it in a variety of situations. Oh yeah, it's everywhere. Oh, okay. um, but uh, Chelsea said that the way her mom got through the entire loss issue and all the pain that is associated with losing an election when you actually had the most popular votes. Mm. Was Chardonnay, so I guess wine, okay, and Charlotte, her grandbaby. Oh, I thought that was a really cool thing. Chardonnay wasn't that one of the characters from High School Musical? <laughs> Probably. 
Or no, that was Sharpay. Yeah, Excuse Sharpay. Me. That's Which a dog. One? Which one? There's three of them. <laughs> um, They're all the same. But oh, okay. <laughs> you guys don't quite understand this because you're so young and you just have your children. But oh. there is no better fix than to be with your granddaughter when you're down. That's what I've been told. And out. It's just the best. Ah. <laughs> I have never tried Chardonnay. Are you having a moment? Yeah. <laughs> so my granddaughter was throwing a fit. Because we woke her up from a nap, and all she wanted was her grandpa to hold her. Aww. Because she, I think she feels like I'm soft and cushiony, so she can just nuzzle into me and just take a little nap, and we watched Moana, Moana together. Again? Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> We've watched it 500 times. Oh. <laughs> oh. So I think that's really cool. Hillary Clinton spending some time with her offspring. Her downline, <laughs> if you're in the multi-level marketing world. Wow. Yeah. And she probably is. And she definitely is. Hey, by the way, today is also Say Something Nice Day, mm. which I think that was nice. That's why I was saying that. It was nice of Hillary, actually Chelsea, to say that her, her mom got through it with a lot of alcohol <laughs> and her grandchild. Okay. Hopefully the two weren't mixed. No. Yeah. Uh, they also planted a garden. Well, she did spend a lot of time outdoors. As well, we I, I, yeah. Normally, she's like in the forest. In the forest, but I didn't know she was a gardener. I think that's great. I hate gardening. Me too. But more power to you. Is she listening to her plants? Yeah. Okay. She, she's she's listened to our show about listening to your plants. Um, so today, say something nice. It was created as a day to be kind to, to the special people in our lives. So I was going to give each of you a chance to say something nice. Are you about you? Or are you fishing for a compliment? Oh, no, or? no, no, no. I'm not, I don't need a compliment, but it would be nice. <laughs> so go ahead and say it. Uh, I'll get back to you. Okay. It's also Go Barefoot Day. I'd prefer if you didn't. Jeff, sorry about that. Jeff, by the way, is um, pregnant and barefoot. Mm. Well, one of those is actually neither of those is true. <laughs> but you, your 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 wife is pregnant and you are barefoot. Do you Fine. see? Do you see people around the office barefoot with like flip flops? Yeah. Well, even like they they'll wear flip flops and just kick them off and start walking around the building. Oh, you can't do that. Like. This is kind of public in the sense – I mean people are just walking in off the street into the building and you don't know what's on the carpets. Great point. Just wait till they get their feet up on the desk and they pull out the toenail clippers. That's the other thing. They get stuck in between the keys. Would you rather- I think people lose all decorum when they take off their shoes. Well, come on. We just talked about a guy with a catfish in his underwear. <laughs> it, smelled, I think that's it, smelled, a bigger, it smelled of old spice. That's a bigger problem. He ran over it with his truck. He had to flatten the head out of those big catfish. Crazy. All right, folks, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we will be talking with Floyd Abrams uh, on his book, The Soul of the First Amendment. Some great insight ahead. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. The First Amendment of the United States Constitution protects the American people's right to voice their opinions freely. And our next guest, Floyd Abrams, is a First Amendment uh, lawyer and author of The Soul 
of the First Amendment, the author of the book, The Soul of the First Amendment. And he's also America's preeminent First Amendment lawyer and has an incredible history of defending First Amendment law and, and is here uh, today to not only talk about his book, but to educate all of us on, uh, you know, what what we think we know, what we don't know about the First Amendment. Floyd Abrams, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, it's good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. You bet. What an honor. And um, boy, oh boy, has there ever been a president where First Amendment was a bigger issue? <laughs> uh, well, yeah. I, I mean, John Adams did get the yeah. Sedition Act. Back then, right, exactly. 1798 through. But we, we sure haven't had a recent president. And, and John Adams uh, wasn't uh, tweeting, was he? That's right. That's right. <laughs> Thank heavens. Huh? So talk to us about the First Amendment, because um, it seems like we're really heavy on giving the right to uh, to the to freedom of speech. Is there uh, is there an inherent responsibility that goes along with the right? Uh, there is not a, a legal responsibility. Uh, uh, I mean, the uh, we protect more speech, including more obnoxious, uh, offensive, and sometimes even dangerous speech uh, than any country uh, in the world uh, because of the the sense, uh, as reflected in the First Amendment, that uh, we simply can't trust the government uh, and will not empower the government to make decisions about, uh, you know, what people can say uh, and ultimately what people can think. But after you say that, that leaves all the range for all of us to uh, apply our own uh, moral judgments uh, and ethical judgments and the like. Uh, so, you know, when uh, when a comedian uh, offers a, a severed head hmm. uh, of President Trump, uh, it doesn't violate the First Amendment for, for people to say that's outrageous, it's ugly, it's unacceptable. Excuse me. The only thing that would be unacceptable is if some government censor came in hmm. and said, well, you can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, what an interesting um, what an interesting, I guess, paradox that we protect the comedian's rights um, to say such a thing. And then I guess we just allow the marketplace to yeah. be punitive. And indeed, she's been fired. Yeah, uh, I, I just read. Yeah, she uh, was from CNN, and, and and that doesn't violate the First Amendment either, uh, right? Uh, uh, for a few reasons, one of which is that the uh, the First Amendment and the whole Bill of Rights uh, is a limitation on the government, not private conduct. I mean, it's intended to limit the authority, the power uh, of of government, and nothing else, more or less. Uh, uh, you know, beyond that, uh, I think people would think it's a it's a good thing to allow decisions to be made uh, as to you know who you want to have on in your newspaper uh, on this program uh, on the air. I mean, we wouldn't we wouldn't want even if we didn't have a First Amendment, we wouldn't want some some government bureaucrat to be deciding uh, who mm. you could interview. No, right. And uh, then this kind of runs into the some of the political arguments we hear about, you know, flag burning and other issues like that. Do you do you sense that we know that that we're we're pretty good at balancing this the, the rights with the needs to speak in this country? 
I think we are. we, uh, you know, have, as every country has, but a, a checkered history in terms of protection for uh, free speech. We've had our bad days, our bad times, uh, and the like. But but uh, the 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 existence of the First Amendment, the interpretation of the First Amendment, very broadly in nature by the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, has has gone a long way towards establishing legal norms, which which allow uh, enormous leeway uh, for people to decide uh, what to say, what to print, and therefore ultimately uh, what to think. Is do, do you sense? Because one of the things I guess President Trump has he's i don't know he's he's made a lot of suggestions he uses twitter to kind of i guess throw ideas out there and i guess see where they go but um in the end do we i, I how do we allow um a president to i guess we have to allow it it's freedom of speech but twitter seems to be getting him in a lot of trouble and i guess with the freedom of speech we don't always need the government to step in and tell you not to say something i guess there is a point where you just need to know it's not in your best interest absolutely uh you need to make your own decision uh and uh when we're talking about a president uh the country passes a sort of judgment yeah uh about to, you know whether you know how to assess uh, a president who says the things uh, on a rather regular basis and takes the positions uh, that this president or you know what, whoever anybody right may may be yeah sure is what but but I would add that yeah, yeah sure pre- presidents uh, also have First Amendment rights right and beyond that beyond that you know we uh, we we there it's more important. Uh, for us to hear, read, and pass judgment on what a president thinks about things, whatever we may think of what he thinks, uh, than than almost anyone else. Hmm. And as as somebody that uh, has argued before the Supreme Court, talk to us about because one of the things I know we hear a lot about is 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 the press and uh their use of sourcing and they have undisclosed sources and anonymous sources have said such and such um at what at what point and help us understand kind of the history behind the sourcing and and how how you're allowed to say something with a a source that's anonymous and why that's so important to us well, it's really important because there's a lot of uh, information uh, which is relevant to what we call self-government, you know, to the public being in charge, ultimately. Uh, not always true, but always what we sort of aim for uh, in our country, uh, which simply couldn't be known without the use of uh, confidential sources. Uh, this administration... Uh, has uh, more often than not been uh, the the butt, as it were, uh, of confidential sources within the government, because there were obviously uh, a, a great uh, a number of people, certainly enough people well enough placed uh, uh, to want to call attention of the public to what the sources believe is is uh, improper conduct. 
uh, by the president. Now, one doesn't have to approve uh, of the use of confidential sources uh, all the time. I, I mean, I remember back way in the period in which Senator Joseph McCarthy was uh, running rampant and accusing people of being communists or pro-communists or the like. And sometimes uh, the FBI wrongly gave information, suspicions about people, which Senator McCarthy used uh, against them uh, and publicly. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the people who are all in favor of the leaks that have been critical or exposing uh, problems of the Trump administration would, I'm, I'm sure, uh, be uh, against uh, leaks uh, of different sorts. Uh, that doesn't mean they're being inconsistent. It just means that, you know, we live in a world which, which has had a, a certain degree uh, of uh, leakage from within the government, including leakage, I would say, from people at the top uh, in the government because they think it's in their interest or they think it's in the interest uh, of the country. And it's just become a, a sort of part of our system. Uh, uh, and, and I think as citizens, you know, we have to judge it uh, uh, sort of on a, an a la carte basis that yeah. there are some leaks that are bad uh, and harmful to society and others uh, that I would use the word uh, patriot to hmm. describe people who provide certain information, which is really important for the government to know. So in my book, for example, I'm very critical of WikiLeaks and Julian Assange, yeah. uh, the, the ultimate publisher uh, of leaked uh, information. Uh, but that doesn't mean that, you know, that I think or that I think our, our listeners today ought to simply reject out of hand uh, everything that comes to them via leaks. Mm. And it's uh, what do you sense is leading to all of the leaks? I mean, we have more leaks, it seems like, than ever before. Yeah, I think that I think uh, it is uh, a sense that uh, with respect to certain issues of the highest importance in the country, that the public isn't being told the truth. Hmm. So when you get to an issue like the uh, Russian uh, involvement uh, and activities, which all the intelligence authorities agree occurred uh, in our last election, uh, that uh, I, I suspect that there, there were people, you know, pr pretty high up, uh, who think it's, it, it is important that, that what went on and any sort of cooperation or collusion of any sort uh, be made public. Uh, I mean, now we're going to have an investigation of that, an official yeah. in investigation, but that wouldn't have happened if we didn't have the initial leaks that sort of put the public on notice that there was a real problem here. Do you sense there will be uh, prosecution of some of the people that are leaking? I mean, is it is it hard to catch a, a uh, it leaker? Shock me. Uh, I mean, it's really uh, not that's not knowable. But but you ask it in the right way. Do it? Do I sense? Yeah, actually, yes. I wouldn't be surprised if the administration, uh, for both ideological and sort of tactical, strategic reasons from their point of view, they would rather talk about the impropriety and the potential illegality of leaking rather than 
what information has been made public as a result of the leaks. Right. And I think that that could well lead them to say, well, let's take the next step. Why don't, why don't we process, not, not just fire this person or that person if we find out that he or she leaked it, but, uh, you know, why don't we start some prosecutions? And one of the things I've been concerned about uh, is whether we would have any potential prosecutions of journalists themselves who are the recipients, but, of the but data, not yeah. the leakers, uh, because our, uh, we have a problem. We have a, we have an Espionage Act, which is a hundred years old, which is phrased very broadly, uh, uh, under which we've never prosecuted a, a, a real journalist, uh, but which has very broad language, uh, and we have yet to have opinions of the Supreme Court because we've not had prosecutions. Uh, defining just how to read that language. Oh, wow. And and I guess that's one of the responsibilities of journalists is to make sure – I mean that's the, that's the – I guess the onus they take on is they have to risk possible prosecution yeah, and, and, and make sure the data is relevant and important enough to get out there. I, absolutely. And, and uh, I mean, you know, the idea certainly shouldn't be – that just because you have some information, you, you rush to publish it. Right. I mean, it ought to be, it ought to be relevant uh, and, and uh, uh, you know, really uh, uh, revelatory, uh, uh, telling something that's worth telling uh, and, and running what I consider to be the continuing risks uh, of the journalistic community in, in doing so. I mean, look, I, I think... Uh, that the, this is a personal view that that the uh, journalistic coverage of the whole uh, Russia uh, uh, involvement uh, in our election uh, has has been of a very high level, a very important level, uh, a very serious level, uh, and and something again which which simply would not have become center stage, but from a journalist uh, being uh, willing to take the extra step, not just to get information, but to make the the, the core decision of uh, publication. Hmm. No, that's a, yeah, I agree, and I think it's a, it's such a tight walk, uh, tightrope walk that they're doing, trying to balance the needs, balance the evidence, make sure it's clear, multiple sourcing, all of the things they need to do, and I guess as. If they have to go anonymous, they have to go anonymous. Um, interesting stuff. We're, we're speaking with Floyd Abrams, author of the book The Soul of the First Amendment. He is a First Amendment lawyer and a preeminent one at that. Um, also is uh, a graduate school, is a visiting professor at the Graduate School of Journalism in Columbia University and is the William J. Brennan visiting professor there. Interesting uh, discussion. Honored to have Floyd Abrams with us. We'll take a break, come back, continue the journey about the First Amendment, learning what we can to help us all be better in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone is Floyd Abrams. He is uh, an American attorney and um, 
Also uh, an expert in First Amendment and free speech. He is the William J. Brennan Jr. Visiting Professor at the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia University. And uh, he's been involved in writing many briefs for the Supreme Court. I believe uh, one in, one was uh, the Pentagon Papers. Was that right, Floyd? Yes, I was involved uh, representing the New York Times. Uh, now, because that's that's a pretty. I mean, there's some interesting parallels, and, and I guess the Pentagon Papers would is about the Johnson administration uh, systematically, I guess, lying to Congress and to the American people about their involvement in our involvement in in uh, Vietnam. Is it? How does that? How do you see that paralleling? I mean, First Amendment wise, the need to to to, you know, allow, not allow leaks, but to get this information out. Right. Well, look, the Pentagon Papers, which uh, uh, really traced uh, how the U.S. became involved in Vietnam, starting with World War II and then going on right up to the Nixon administration, but focusing most, as you say, uh, on the Johnson administration, uh, uh, was all uh, stamped top secret. It was a, a Defense Department uh, uh, study of how we'd become involved uh, in the war, uh, prepared at the request of the Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara. Um, you know, and the basic challenge there was that the government, President Nixon in power, went to court seeking to stop the New York Times from publishing articles hmm. based on this uh, secret, although historical in nature, uh, study. And my view is that if we had not won that, uh, and we did, if the New York Times uh, had not uh, won that case, uh, we would be in a situation uh, in which uh, every administration, and most certainly this one, (laughs) would be considering very seriously going to court to try to stop the publication uh, of the very leaks that you asked me about, yeah. uh, of, of, of saying, look, this isn't authorized and it's, it's harmful to uh, the governments always say it's harmful to national security. Uh, uh, and it's important to keep the, this sort of stuff secret. Uh, and the Times, uh, the, the, the entire press, the public has no right to it, etc. And And the, the great contribution of the uh, Pentagon Papers case ruling was that uh, presidents have learned that that a prior restraint, an injunction, a bar on publication is something that they uh, are is really off limits to them. You know, one could imagine a situation maybe, but but in terms of sort of day to day life as president being angry or upset or concerned about publication of material that you think is harmful, harmful to you, maybe you think harmful to the country. One of the weapons they don't have is to go to court uh, and say, stop them, enter an order, bar them from publishing it. And that uh, that was a very major uh, contribution of the Pentagon Papers decision. Well, and you can see with President Trump, who seems to have so much animus towards um, toward the press, that that would be this this would get ugly uh, if if legally he could yeah. just keep suing the media. Um, talk about the 
I guess that we hear a lot about a lot of intelligence and we hear, you know, Congress people running here and there to go see intelligence reports and briefs. Is there it seems like everything's now top secret. Every piece of information is is that running into a problem where some information is just it's I guess it's been noted as top secret when it really might not be top secret. Well, that's true. That's that's not a uh, that's not limited to this administration. Yeah, classification, uh, uh, I guess. You know, uh, yeah, the overclassification of material uh, has has been problematic for years and years. Um, it it comes to the fore here, you know, because the very material we're talking about, uh, you know, bears upon the the conduct of the campaign of the president himself. Um, and uh, uh, obviously, if that were all it dealt with, uh, it really shouldn't be classified right. at all. Uh, on the other hand, it, it, to the extent it deals with them dealing with the Russians, uh, yeah, one can see how it would be classified. But, but if it's classified, it, you know, it's important that the classification system basically be understood as a limitation on on uh, how how documents within the control of the government should be handled mm. not a broad limitation uh, on the ability of the public uh, to find out what's going on with respect to the behavior uh, of of our, our our governmental entities i mean remember the whole the whole theory of our country is, is 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 that it is based on the notion that that it is the public uh, that that is the ultimate fount of authority, hmm. uh, and and while you know while there are limits and we have limits uh, uh, both for reasons that we can't just have a series of referenda one after another on every issue, uh, we we also have limits because the public itself often uh, uh, coalesces behind uh, views and approaches which are or may be discriminatory in nature. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, suppose, for example, uh, that what, what, what the president, uh, that when he was running for office, uh, and he said we, we ought to have a complete ban on all Muslims hmm. entering America. Uh, it it may well have been. I don't know what the polling data is, but let's say 60% of the public thought that was a good idea. Uh, that doesn't make it constitutional. Right. And one of the reasons we have a constitution is so our courts can can have a look at that and say uh, this is based on what is essentially a violation of the First Amendment because it's based on religion. Hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, and so uh, all, all these factors come into play, uh, but, but uh, it, it certainly is true that, that they're, they're coming into play. People are learning about them, which is good, and, and understanding, I think, more all the time, you know, just uh, how the Constitution in general and, and the Bill of Rights in particular and the First Amendment in particular protects them. What do you think— the founding fathers would think about this whole social media push and the power of Facebook, the power of the of 
because yeah. the press isn't just you know a well-respected Columbia you know author or right. writer anymore. The press is now somebody in their bedroom writing on a laptop uh, and Absolutely. and reaching millions of people. Well, first, I think they'd be stunned. Yeah, can you imagine <laughs> the whole notion of social media? Uh, but uh, uh, and 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 again, let's bear in mind uh, the First Amendment only applies to the government. Right, it does not apply to social media. Uh, social media has protection against the government, but but the government, you know, can't, as a general proposition, tell social media or people on it what they're allowed to say or what they're not allowed to say. Um, but back to your question, I think that uh, that they would uh, sort of take a deep breath. I think they'd come out the same way uh, as, uh, as they did, which is to say uh, the, the Bill of Rights applies only to the government uh, and, and only limits the government. It doesn't limit social media. But they'd be concerned, I think, about the degree to which Facebook, say, is the, the source mm. of news for, for such an enormous percentage uh, of our public. Uh, and therefore, the, the power of, of, the, of that institution and its competitors. But Facebook is, you know, first amongst them in terms of the amount of, of individuals who, who get their news and information from Facebook. Yeah. I, th- I think they'd also be concerned on at least, uh, at least one other uh, basis, and that is that more and more now uh, people are able uh, to get a diet only of news that they agree with. Right. Uh, that, that one can arrange one's social media so so you got the you know the columnists the people the sources that you like which is on the one hand uh an example of freedom it is but on the other uh is a major shift away from a time in which the country as a whole was basically getting the same sort of information at the same time uh, even as to purely factual matters, 9-11, yeah. you know, an event, a terrible event uh, threatening the country. And, uh, you know, we, we, we have moved to a situation now where people can create the, their own menu and in which that menu, uh, you know, has included a good deal of rightly called fake news. Yeah. Uh, entities, you know, which, which uh, have no... No reality to them at all as news gathering and news dissemination entities, but are simply lying mm. for for ideological or other purposes. Yeah, and sometimes just marketing, right? Just to make another yeah, lead, to get another dollar. Marketing. Yeah, exactly. What um, we only have about a minute left, Floyd. But I want give us your. Give us your wisdom, your insight. What What do we as Americans need to remember? And not take for granted when it comes to the First Amendment. I guess the most important thing is that we need the First Amendment most when we're talking about speech with which we do not agree, uh, a speech that offends us, uh, or at the least which we think is is really sort of uh, harmful. Uh, 
you know, you don't really need a First Amendment to protect popular views. Uh, you need it to protect dissenting views. And, and, and it would be a good thing, you know, if we all recognized and celebrated the fact that, that you know, we are open as a people. Uh, to, to having views expressed uh, uh, with which we disagree uh, and which we think are even harmful to the country. And it would be a good thing sometime if we had a look to see what people with whom we disagree had to say about things. So true. So true. Well, Floyd, we appreciate you and your great uh, history, your great work. Thank you for uh, enlightening us and giving us the time. Again, Floyd Abrams is the author of the book, The Soul of the First Amendment, and um, you, can, you can find that on bookshelves everywhere. Boy, what a great thing. We, we need the First Amendment to protect the rights of the, of the speech you don't agree with. And if you've ever been a minority or in a minority grouping or class, you, you get the power of the First Amendment that allows the voice and facilitates hopefully an open conversation between these combative ideas. We'll take a break, my friend. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back, friends. Um, Boy, oh boy, when you have a scholar on the show that uh, has met and argued before the Supreme Court, the Pentagon Papers case, Citizens United case, and a variety of other cases, and in the end, the ultimate uh, lesson he teaches is the importance of being able to hear and allow the freedom of speech of the person you most disagree with. It's it's a pretty powerful point, right? So so let's all take it in and, and ask ourselves, how well are you doing on that front? How effective are you at being informed, first and foremost, and, and not just being informed by your media source, but being kind of widely read and uh, and informed by a variety of sources? And how how well are you at listening to another person's, how effectively... Can you uh, can you listen to another person's position, point of view? Can you describe their point of view to their satisfaction, to show that you really get it? And do you know how to add your point of view and build onto theirs? See, a lot of us think it's got to be a, di- a debate where we have to – I have to break you down. I have to cut your issues up and tear it up. But it really should be a dialogue that we're trying to create here. A dialogue is where both of our ideas can coexist, and we should just trust the power of our idea. I don't need to intimidate you. I don't need to shut you down. I don't need to keep you away from certain outlets. I don't need to you know, push your idea and drown your idea. Your idea, if it, if it holds water, it should hold water. And just let the ideas combat instead of the people combating. Wouldn't that be powerful? The power of the First Amendment. And uh, look at this. You did nothing to get it, really. You just now have to keep it. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. This is the program where we give you the latest, greatest research, on, and hopefully the research will take you to a new level in your life. You know? Because nobody was given a handbook to make it through life, so you got to learn, and we want to be your source for uh, living longer, loving stronger, leading healthier lives. Today, no exception, in studio we should be uh, talking with a professor about why dads can't necessarily be the dads they want to be. There is a lot of interesting um, assumptions, beliefs, expectations around fathering and mothering that isn't as friendly to fathers. And then we wonder why so many fathers aren't involved. Interesting. Hmm. Like, Jeffrey, your wife's pregnant, and Mm -hmm. uh, how, how have you noticed... Uh, friendly are the OBGYNs, the gynecologists, the obstetricians in relating to you because they're really your wife's doctor. Right. So when the baby comes, it really has very little to do with you. Right. Really. It's really about her. And so even when you go in to get a, um, what are they called? Ultrasound. Ultrasound. There may not even be a seat for you in the room. (laughs) Or if there is, you might be wedged against a wall. There's a great seat for the doctor. There's I was a, in the corner. They placed me in the corner. They gave me a coloring book. Oh, they yeah. <laughs> and they told you to put your head between your knees because you're going to get sick. Um, anyway, there are a lot of just assumptions and beliefs behind all of that, and some interesting research coming out of a professor here at BYU that I think uh, will blow your mind. Like, you, you know, how about paternity leave? I mean, it's one thing to have maternity leave. You got to go deliver a baby, but what about the dads that want to be there? Yeah, you know what I mean. What about us? What about us? And what about prenatal care? Like when you're when before the baby's even born, there's really nothing for a dad to do. So a lot of times they don't involve the father in prenatal care at all. What do you do? Talk to the baby, sit and stroke your wife's belly and talk to the baby. I think you're going to start an uprising here at BYU Radio among all the men. A lot of people are going to. Rebel. My last kid, my wife, we went to a newer hospital, and they had rooms that were for the uh, ultrasound that were quite large, so you could bring in like your whole family if you wanted to. Yeah, and uh, there was there they were talking to me, they were talking to her, and that was the difference between my first kid. Yeah, where like they barely acknowledged I was in the room. <laughs> you know, so I mean, they're changing sort of the, this approach. Right. Like every, you know, we need to involve the father and kind of talk with him a little bit. And he's, you know, a human being in the corner, but you know, we'll talk to him. You know, but they had a chair, big screen TV, so it wasn't just on this little screen over in the corner. It was up on the on the wall and it was yeah. in HD watching the you know the horrible and, ultrasound picture. But and it's I don't think any of it is. Uh, I don't think any of this is malicious. I think it's just no. – but eventually you also – but you do hear eventually complaints that they want fathers more involved. Yeah. And why aren't fathers more involved? And, I mean, postpartum depression apparently also can impact a father. Mm. 
and they themselves can go into postpartum depressions, not because of chemistry, but because of the pressure and the life and the change. I think that's why I'm gaining all this weight. No, totally. You're gaining baby um, weight. You know, but, you know, usually it's postpartum, but this is pre-postpartum. Well, I think yours is actually just donuts and um, <laughs> stuff like that. I went through video game withdrawal. You know, the kids in the room. Yeah, I can't, right? It's too can't noisy. Video, yeah. Can't do that. Yeah. So gotta, Keep the house quiet. So now I've done some workarounds right. with Bluetooth. You can turn the volume down, listen on some headphones. Now you've got headphones. <laughs> Which just disconnects you further from the family. Oh, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. But I guess this is the this is the discussion we got to have because at some point, if you want dads really involved, then then there probably has to be a few shifts. In because they've already proven parents that are involved in prenatal care, fathers that are involved in prenatal care, like going to all the prenatal visits, making sure we're taking the vitamins, that feel like there's a kind of a sense of ownership in the process, they are better fathers. After the child is born. The father taking vitamins? No, that making oh. sure that we okay. are taking vitamins for our child. Oh, the, the, okay, gotcha. Yeah. Can so they involved. be the, the Flintstone gummy vitamins? No. You're, you're <sighs> going with the we are pregnant approach to pregnancy instead well, of she is pregnant. Yeah, the research would show when a yeah. father feels like he's part of this pregnancy, mm. then he's a better father after. Well, I feel like I'm part – because I'm on pins and needles trying not to set some yeah. specific person off on a daily basis. No, this, that's probably <laughs> – See, that's, this is why you want me to drink that castor oil exactly. along with my wife. I want you to take a little castor oil and see if it starts you into labor <laughs> and you your wife. You know what we ought to do? We ought to get one of those um, contraction simulators and put it on one of us during the show, during a live show. Yeah. And see how it goes. Have you seen those? Oh, yeah. They I love those. Strap them onto the, all these wires yeah, on the belly. So we and... do it on you. So, hey, do this. Tomorrow, because it's Friday, bring your half T-shirt. You know that one you always wear around the office? The tank top? The one that it's, it's the half shirt that you cut, your, you cut the lower half of the shirt off. I think that's, yeah, okay. What do we call that? Tank top? No. No. no? Tank top doesn't have sleeves. A belly shirt? I don't know. Like a... Well, you can see your belly. A fashion crime? Do that. Bring that. Wear that shirt tomorrow, and we will hook you up on that contraction thing. Okay. That contraction contraption. You've got, you're have got. you not going to put like an EKG machine on me, right? No. Okay. No, we won't. But there is an EED downstairs if we need it. I'll go hook you up on that. <laughs> Give you a little electroshock. Hey, uh, we'll get to um, the why dads you know, might be struggling because they can't necessarily be the dad they want to be. Interesting research on that topic coming up. Also, we will um, be covering, of course, some crazy news. What is where, where would be the best place to hide an engagement ring <laughs> if you needed to hide an engagement ring and you were in a surgery? Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So we'll get to that story in a bit. Uh, but first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? Ohio Attorney General Mike DeWine filed a lawsuit Wednesday against five pharmaceutical companies saying that by making users believe their opioid products were not addictive, they helped start the state's opioid epidemic. The lawsuit alleges that the companies violated Ohio's Consumer Sales Practices Act and created a public nuisance by disseminating false and misleading statements about the risks and benefits 
of the uh, drugs that they created. These drug manufacturers led prescribers to believe that opioids were not addictive, that addiction was an easy thing to overcome, or that addiction could actually be treated by taking even more opioids. Which makes total sense, right? Right. Right. Uh, so Ohio is seeking a declaration from the companies that they acted illegally, an, inju- an injunction to stop their continued deceptions and misrepresentations, and repayment to consumers and the state for unnecessary prescriptions. In 2015, 3,000 people died in Ohio from drug overdoses. Right. So they're going after these companies for the, the epidemic that's going on. Right. Uh, another news, global traffic generated from bots surpassed human-generated internet traffic last year, according to an annual Internet Trends report. Surprisingly, 2016 wasn't the first year that bots or automated software that can act on their own uh, created more internet traffic than humans. In 2012 and 2013, bots were also more active uh, on the internet than people. Uh, bots were a particular problem in Twitter during the 2016 U.S. election. Uh, also in the report, data breaches that exposed more than 10 million user identities were also on the rise. In 2014, there were 11 data breaches of that size, but in 2016, that number jumped to 15. Mm. Our data's out there for everyone to see. The initial construction of the massive airplane, Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft and the owner of the Seattle Seahawks, has been quietly building in the California desert, is complete. And the vehicle, which would be the world's largest airplane with a wingspan wider than Howard Hughes' Spruce Goose, was wheeled out of its hangar for the first time on Wednesday. Called the Straddle Launch, the plane has some impressive stats. A wingspan of 385 feet or longer than a football field, a height of 50 feet, unfueled, it weighs 500,000 pounds, but it can carry 200, uh, 250,000 pounds of fuel, and its total weight can reach as high as 1.3 million pounds. Wow. And it still flies. It's, it's so big that it has 28 wheels, six 747 uh, jet engines. It's so big that it has 60 miles of wire cur- uh, coursing through it. It's so big that the country... Or the county had to issue special construction permits just for the construction of the scaffolding for the airplane. Yeah, right? wow. Just the framing to build it. Uh, the frame will not carry passengers, but rather rockets. Allen's launch company plans to carry a rocket capable of uh, delivering small satellites weighing as much as 1,000 pounds into orbit. The rocket would be tethered to the belly of the giant plane, which would fly them aloft, and once at an altitude of 35,000 feet or so, drop the rockets. So they would have an air launch into space. Tethered to the belly. So that's the idea. But the airplane is huge. It's, it's ginormous. What, isn't it? Um, but it, it's remote controlled? Uh, no, I think there's pilots. Because it looks like it doesn't look like there's a cockpit anywhere. Oh. Like they it's just, a drone of yeah, some kind? Yeah, it's like some big, I don't, I don't, huge monster drone. We have a problem with little tiny drones. I don't I know if they're going to have a monster drone. It so. is huge. Maybe it has the capability of both. Yeah. Um, finally, 19 members of the, and associates of the New York-based uh, Lacuse family were uh, arrested in a massive bust by the FBI on Wednesday. Uh, the accused suspects faced charges including murder as well as racketeering, gambling, narcotics, wire fraud, and possession of weapons. You know, gangsters. Uh, the arrest could include uh, the arrest include the boss of the family, Matthew Madonna, as well as underboss Steve Correa, who has the colorful nickname of Wonder Boy. <laughs> Other family members with nicknames like Spanish Carmine, Joey Glasses, and Polly Roast Beef were also arrested. <laughs> we need better names. Yeah. We could seem more gangsta if we had better names. Well, it's not gangsta. It's gangster. Sorry, gangster. What was the Roast Beef? Yeah. What was his name again? I'm trying to see here. Polly Roast Beef. Polly Ro- See, he's probably the one that they pick on. Yeah. Where he's like, you know, I said one time that I liked Mom's Roast Beef. Yeah. 
And ever since then, you guys have called me Polly Roast Beef. But I wonder if he doesn't like it. Yeah, it's Polly and Polly's Roast Beef. Like what if they – what if somebody saw you eating a bowl of Fruity Pebbles? Like, hey, 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 Maddie Fruity Pebbles. (laughs) Yeah, you got to make sure your nickname is – you're in a good situation. But Roast beef's pretty strong. That's a strong meal. Right. Like what if it was more like Fruity Pebbles or macaroni salad? Hey, it's mm. bad. Or like, or macaroni quin- salad. Or like quinoa. Ooh, yeah. Maddie quinoa. I mean, yeah. Hey. Also, an update. The uh, yeah. Pittsburgh prosecutors have dropped the uh, charges against the Tennessee men for throwing the catfish onto the rink during the opening game of the Stanley Oh, they dropped the charges. Yeah. So Whew. he had the uh, – they, they said it was uh, – let's see. Crime, disruptive. Oh, he was tossing the fish. They called it like a deadly weapon. Or something. So yeah, they they got rid of that because it's a fish and doesn't matter. Yeah, so they dropped the charges. His his uh, his actions didn't rise to criminal. So just disruptive. Yeah, and that's. And I think it, they had to drop the charges because his pants smelled so bad, like Old Spice and catfish. And he was losing. He was he was he was losing circulation because he had right. too many. He had catfish sandwich in his underwear. That's so gross. That's what they called it, right? Yeah. He called it an underwear sandwich. So he like had a pair of shorts, catfish, another Compress- pair of shorts. Compression shorts. Yeah. yeah. Just kind of got them all tightened but, up in there. And with a vacuum sealed bag of catfish. Right. Hmm. Could you imagine the smell when he opened it oh, in yeah, the I stadium? Could. And all the people around him were like, oh. You know what? It reminds me of uh, Congressman Ted. Cruz? Cruz. Because he's the guy that cooks fish at the. Yeah. Right. Senator Al Franken describes him as the guy in your office that cooks fish in the microwave. That's Ted Cruz. <laughs> the one that nobody likes. Cause... And he knows it's going to stink, but he does it anyways. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great description. I don't know. I don't know Ted Cruz. So I don't know that he's actually like that, but – and that's – it's an offensive statement. That would make me mad. Um, hey, we got to tell you the story about a woman who bought a th- – no, 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 no. A boyfriend who proposed to a nurse – by hiding an engagement ring inside an abdomen wound. Ugh. Yeah. This is love. I mean, you know you're in love if your partner will do this. A Russian man proposed to his girlfriend by hiding a ring inside his stomach wound. The unidentified uh, person had a friend film as he bemused his partner, who's also a nurse, and she tries to extract the jewelry. She then bursts into tears after realizing that the embedded object is and agrees to the proposal, though stops to wash the ring before putting it on. Good move. It's not known how the man became injured, though local media reports that he came up with the prank after convincing a surgeon to hide the ring inside the wound. He then asked his girlfriend to change the dressing before sitting back to watch the man who has also presented uh, his bride-to-be with a bouquet of roses and some penicillin, (laughs) told local media that he wanted to make his proposal unforgettable. Well, mission accomplished. You've done your job. We actually have some audio of this. Really? Because he wanted to, you know, he wanted to record it. He wanted to make it special. Yeah. So here's that. You know, I can maybe talk about what they say afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Because it's in Russian. It's in Russian. Okay. Надежда, ты яблоко моего глаза. Я хочу провести станок своей жизни с тобой. Ты выйдешь за меня? Да, да, 
сто раз, да. да. Положил его обратно. Положил его обратно. He's back. So oh. we lost him for a minute. Sounds so like he's bleeding sounds like out. he like opened up the wound, handed her the ring, and then she was just so delighted. And then he started flatlining. So he said, "Put it back! Put it back!" <laughs> is that what he said? Yeah. How weird is that? And then she put it back, and he was okay. So I guess the wedding ring has to stay inside his gut. Can I just chalk this up to the worst? Wedding engagement <laughs> approach ever. I mean, it's bad enough to like do this at a basketball game, football game, but to make your wife pull her wedding ring out of your wound. Now, the only thing that could have made it worse is if you know he did this at a basketball game. Yeah, that had would his be worse. wife had the yeah. fiance open up the wound at the basketball game. That's a great point. Boy, oh boy. And they say marriage is losing its allure. <laughs> I don't see how they can say that. Crazy stuff, folks. We will take a break. Stick with us when we come back. We'll continue the journey. We're talking about why dads can't be dads that they want to be. Up next with the top researcher. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. You know why dads can't be the dads they want to be? Traditional gender attitudes and expectations definitely have a hand in uh, this discussion, but inequalities between moms and dads are not driven solely by beliefs or interpersonal interactions. Most fathers say they want to be more involved as a parent, yet public policy, social institutions often prevent them from being the dads they want to and uh, that they want to be. Here to talk with us more about why it's becoming more and more difficult to be the father, a father in our society is Dr. Kevin Schaefer. He's an associate professor of sociology here at Brigham Young University, and he's been performing some very interesting uh, research and studies. Kevin, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. This is, I think, as a dad of six children, I... I was okay with it because I kind of felt like, you know, I'm doing my all because I work all day and I'm I'm providing for the family. But I can see this weird shift where me working all day providing for the family isn't that isn't perceived as as big of an offering as just, you know, being a better parent or being more available at home. Talk to us about what you see happening in in the kind of the, I guess the paradigm we have for being a dad. Yeah, I think I think you're right. So so I'm I'm a dad of four kids, um, and I'm in my mid 30s. And I think a lot of people, particularly my age, my generation, and younger, um, remember their fathers uh, as being sort of out of the house, yeah. not having a lot of contact Gone all day, providing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. My father was a was a firefighter, so it was sort of a unique situation. But he um, would often not be not be at home because I know he was helping provide for our family. But I think for a lot of men my age and younger, um, they wanted something different for their own children. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I think there's been a lot of changes in the workplace, for example, where women are are in the workplace more and more, um, even 
since the 90s, um, working full-time more. Um, and, uh, and as a result, I think there's been a greater pressure on men to be um, more attuned to the needs of their families, not yeah. just seeing themselves as only breadwinners. Yeah. Do yeah. You, is, so with women now in the workforce um, and men in the workforce, are, are, are fathers picking up the parenting responsibilities as much? So they are doing more. Um, what we do know from research is that moms still do more um, housework and childcare uh, than men do. Uh-huh. Though the the ratio of men's to women's work has changed, it's shifting. Um, it's shifting, right? But but men are still doing less at home yeah. than women are. At the same time, men um, on average do work more. Um, hours outside the home. So uh, Pew Research recently um, did an analysis of time use in the United States and found that when you add work, um, housework, and childcare together, men and women are actually doing about the same amount of work. Really? There's more parity then. Right, exactly. But the ratios are, are a little bit different. St- it's, it's so interesting. When you actually add in how much time they're at work plus home mm-hmm. chores, helping with the kids, it tends to even out a lot right. more. Right. Isn't that interesting? And yet we we hear a lot of stories about how they're just not picking it up. They're not doing their their part. Um, but what when you wrote the article, why dads can't be the dads they want to be? What what what's behind it? What's causing dads not to be able to be their, their the kind of father they want to be? Right. So I think um, I think a lot of it has to do with the way that the institutions that we interact with. On a daily basis, for example, the workplace or the healthcare system, which are two examples I used in the article, um, that they they set a course for men and for fathers um, that sort of indicate to them that they're secondary parents. So, for example, think about the workplace. Um, so, let's set aside just for a moment maternity leave and paternity leave, and just think about workplace flexibility. Right. So, um, a lot of times. Um, women are expected um, to be more flexible with their work hours than men are. Um, And they actually do pay a penalty for that in terms of wages, et cetera. So there's something we know that's called the motherhood penalty, right? So women who who are mothers actually get paid less Uh on average. Um, And so um, because that's the way the workplace is structured, um, a lot of men can't be as involved um, in in their children's lives as they want to be because they feel the pressure of needing to um, financially provide for their families yeah um, while at the same time wanting to be more involved in their kids lives and so there's this um, conflict I think for a lot of men and the, I think that conflict also exists for women yeah um, the decisions are are different and I think that's in part due to the fact that <clears throat> our institutions and our our Public policy sort of tells men that they're secondary parents too. Well, in the fall of the sudden, the man went to the HR department and said, "Hey, I want to, I want to have some of the latitude that so and so has." Mm-hmm. Um, there's if there is an inherent motherhood anti, not anti, but a motherhood bias. So if mm-hmm. you're a mother and the institutions are biased against you, they can't all of a sudden. Oh, then we're just going to give you the father bias, and mm-hmm. so it, it's a really weird position because the institutions aren't moving yet. To right. change it on either side, right? And so, 
the the father can't go be as available as he might mm-hmm. want to be without a major penalty or without it's almost more just social pressure like so you don't want your job right well no yeah. i do i just have kids <laughs> like the other yeah. 10 women in the room right i just yeah, want to exactly. be like them exactly um i think i think you know the the major point of this i th- is that if we want equality both at home and in the workplace which i think are admirable goals, right? right? Those are goals that we should be working towards. Um, then we really need to think about um, how we structure our policy, how we structure um, the institutions that we work in every day um, so that we can actually have yeah. that equality, right? So I think sometimes people think, well, just go do it. Yeah. And it's not it's not that easy, right? We're interacting with things within our society all the time. And yeah. those, those things put barriers between us and what we actually want no, frequently. It, it's interesting. And the, ba- the barriers are – they're subtle. They're not, they're not always obvious. Mm-hmm. They're not always talked about. They're not stated. Right. And so it, it's interesting because I could hear a lot of people saying, well, why does any of this matter, Kevin? They're making more money. So you're being compensated where women aren't being compensated for it. But it still gets back to the fact that if you're a dad that wants to be a better dad – right. Compensation or not, you can't go do that without creating an uprising. Exactly. Yeah, and I think, um, and, and I think though know, the the major point or one of the major points here is that it, what it does is it actually shortchanges not just dads, but it mm-hmm. shortchanges moms and shortchanges right. chi- uh, children. children as well. Um, so when we think about um, the kids, they actually do benefit substantially from having an involved father um, and and dads do parent in unique ways that actually do benefit yeah. children in unique they ways. They bring in different – I mean they might be more aggressive. They might be mm-hmm. more strong, which helps with anger management, emotion management. That's I mean right. there's a yeah. lot of – they're more risk takers. They, mm-hmm. they get the child to get out and risk a little bit more. That's right. Yeah, exactly. I mean it's – it's, it's, and you want that. Now, now talk about – because – Another another thing that I guess is is part of um, the political you know underground that's pushing against a lot of this is it men are kind of um, marginalized when it comes to the child in what you call the magic moment, right? So, and a lot of men don't even know there is a magic moment that involves <laughs> right. a child. Yeah. Um, so explain what the magic moment is and how kind of institutionally. We just don't – we marginalize them. Right. So um, social scientists refer to this – this uh, the moment of having a kid or finding out that um, that you're going to have a kid as the magic moment. And what that means is, is that this is often a turning point in the lives of a lot of, a lot of men, right? So, I mean, I can sort of speak for yeah. myself. So my wife and I found out um, that we were going to have uh, a child while I was in – in graduate school, right, and and graduate school is is stressful and uh, challenging, um, but I think at that moment when we found out that my wife was pregnant, I felt like an intense sense of pressure about, yeah. oh, I've actually got to get my stuff together. You got to get right? going, yeah. <laughs> you got to provide, man. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, and there's actually been you know research on on. Uh, changes that men make, so they often get healthier. Hmm. They they take less risk. Those sorts of things are associated with with having um, having a child, right? So it's uh, it's beneficial 
um, yeah. for them. It's beneficial for their families. Um, what we also know about that period of time is that if men are involved in in that process, like the prenatal period, that they actually are much more likely to be involved fathers as a result. So that actually it kind of it sucks them in. If so, exactly. so if they can be yeah. sucked in early prenatal. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because there's there's not as much to do. It doesn't seem like I mean, but there it's it's I guess more about the feeling that you are a part of this. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I think I think women have a very similar um, experience, but that experience is also based in the biology of the experience, right? right. So their their body is they're carrying is, this baby inside exactly them, that right. they feel all day every day. Exactly. Whereas men don't have that experience. Yeah. So if we integrate men into the prenatal period. Um, they're more likely to identify as a father yeah. and more more likely to see the importance of, of their role um, in their lives. And unfortunately, um, I think sometimes within um, the medical system, we sometimes marginalize uh, men from that process, right? And it's, it's somewhat understandable. Yeah. Um, an, an OB is going to be focused on uh, – His patient. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> and the dad is not the patient. That's right. And so – um, but I think what we need is we need to be able to see the long-term yeah. impact of all of that and not just think, uh, well, okay, I'm worried about the mom's health. I'm worried about the baby's health. But I they need to be worried about the entire uh, family from here on out. Yeah. Well, and we hear in the culture that, you know, women babies are the women's right. It's their right to choose. It's all about their right. Mm-hmm. And then – but again, then what – Right. Does the man have what involvement does the man have at any process of this? And then we're still amazed as a society that they aren't as involved as we want them to be. Right. And yeah. So I guess what I'm hearing is we need we need to find a way to get people. I mean, again, you can you can still rub lotion on your wife's belly every night and talk to the baby every night and go to every one of her visits and get her vitamins for her and go be active with her and help her paint the the nursery. And by doing all of that, you're probably setting your spouse up to be a better dad. That's right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think – so I think about like the ultrasound, which yeah. for my four kids was the moment that sort of became real it, to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you're seeing something. Yeah. You know, you're seeing your child for the first time and it, you know, it doesn't really look like no, a kid. Yeah. But, it looks like yeah. a hamburger or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And, and you hear their heartbeat for the first time. Exactly. But yeah. Those are, real, those are real moments. But I that's think, a medical – that's an institutional moment mm-hmm. too. And so how the, how the radiologist or whatever, whoever's doing the work uh, to do the ultrasound, you made a good point in your article that the father may be – there may not even be actually a place for the father to sit in some of these rooms. That's right. Yeah. So you're kind of standing back in a corner – um, the you know, there's place for everyone else, and mm. they they'll I mean they try to involve you. I I don't sense they don't try to involve you, right. but you're not the patient. So when they right. have to address any issue about the baby, they tend to address the wife, mm-hmm. and that makes sense. Except right, yeah. it does. It's got to be communicating to you quietly that okay. So what is my role here? That's right, especially within the context of you know the way that we socialize kids yeah for example right we don't often um talk about talk to boys the way we talk to girls about being a parent yeah so we often say well being a mom is inherent to being a woman in a lot of ways but we don't tie 
the father to that. The father to that, right? We don't tell boys that same. That's true. That same story. So. And subtle, isn't it? It's just mm-hmm. subtle what we're doing. Interesting stuff. Kevin, let's take a break, come back and continue the discussion. Talk about what we can do after the babies are born, um, other things that are going on institutionally that we should watch out for. We're talking about why dads might maybe struggling being the dad they want to be and uh, what we can do about it. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. Now, are we living in a country, in a culture where for years, forever, uh, women have been the source of home and they've been the source of what parenting is? And because of that, have we set up institutionally government decisions, uh, healthcare decisions, professional decisions at our workplace that tend to put fathers in a weird position? Where they want to be a better dad, they want to have maybe some time to be able to be a more nurturing dad and be there, and yet the systems or the culture hasn't caught up yet. I mean, it's still weird to see some dads, you know, taking the kids to the playgroups and being the stay-at-home dad. For some, that's so out of the ordinary Mm -hmm. that it's not even an acceptable option. Um, And so joining us is uh, Kevin Schaefer. He is an associate professor of sociology uh, and uh, faculty um, uh, in the Department of Social Work here at Brigham Young University. And he's written some interesting um, articles. One is Why Dads Can't Be the Dads They Want to Be. Kevin, thanks again for being with us. Thanks. That was interesting research we were talking about during the break that – and we mentioned it earlier – that when dads are involved in prenatal care, they tend to do better in postnatal care – but that's even true if the parents aren't married. So a father that's not married to the mother but is involved in prenatal care, it's even a big has even a bigger impact on them postnatally. Yeah, that's right. So um, some of the research that we've we've done here at BYU has shown that um, for the dads that that are not married um, or not living with with the mom, um, if they're involved in the prenatal period, that they um, they are more involved in the kids' lives. So yeah. not just um, being present, um, which they are more likely to be present, but they're also far more likely to um, take an active role in the caregiving process as well. Hmm. Um, and they're more likely to be a better co-parent with the mom. Um, so, I mean, I think that really underscores the significance uh, of that prenatal period um, for all men, but specifically for men who are at in what at we risk. consider at risk. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, and a lot of times those those men can just be disposable. Okay, mm-hmm. now we've got the woman. She's got a baby. She's decided to keep it. Let's just put her in the system. Right. And so she'll go to her appointments. She won't communicate. And I mean, again, legally, he should also be compensating. I mean, there's other mm-hmm. legal things that they might go for, but it's, right. it also doesn't make him a better parent. Right, I mean, exactly. Because I'm paying child support doesn't make me a better parent. Right. What might make me a better parent is involving me. Exactly. And that's hard in these complex situations where you don't want to be involved very much or I don't trust you to be involved or – um, it's hard. Talk mm-hmm. about some of your other research. What are some other barriers that uh, men run into? 
I guess, at the workplace and just in life to to be the dad they want to be. Yeah. So yeah, I think I think the workplace is actually a major a major contributor. Um, I think sometimes we, at least within sociology, we consider the workplace to be the best policeman of gender uh-huh. <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, so uh, what I find really interesting is the importance of workplace culture. So there's been a lot of research coming out of Europe, which have much more generous um, paternity leave and maternity leave policies than the United States has that shows that um, that men are still kind of unlikely to take paternity leave, yeah. even though that those policies exist. Even in Europe, where even they Europe, exist, right? they don't want to take the leave. Exactly. And so, and a lot of those are paid leave, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so you, they'd be compensated. That's right. But they don't want to. And so that still might be some of the stigma of losing your edge, people it, not trusting you'll do your job. Exactly. So researchers who have looked into that um, in the UK and in Sweden, who have those are two countries actually have some of the most generous paternity leave policies, have actually shown that um, those dads are still worried about the stigma hmm. associated with them taking the time off. And so um, I think that really underscores the importance of workplace culture in addition to the policies that exist, right? Yeah. So those policies are important. They're beneficial. Um, but at the same time, um, if, you're not, if you're in a workplace that doesn't – or that judges you for using that policy, yeah. it's still not beneficial, right? Because I think there's still that concern of, well, I need – to make money so that I can help my family in, in these ways, right? And so um, we actually have done re- work on that here in the, in the U.S., and we found that even dads who are really reluctant to be involved in the lives of their children, if they work in, in jobs that are, uh, have cultures that are family-friendly, they're more likely to be involved oh, in their kids' lives. Yeah. So family-friendly, I guess, meaning how they, have, they have policies, they have – Family-oriented activities, events mm-hmm. with, within the organization. Yeah, sometimes they're just really informal things, yeah. right? So, um, you know, uh, you have a boss that says, hey, if you need to take off because your kid's sick at school, go. then then go. You know, that's, that's a bigger priority than this is. Um, if you work in those kinds of places, I think that, so that sends a message. Yeah. That, you know, where your priorities should lie. How much of this stigma, because I could even see it here. I've taken time off uh, to go work on my gallbladder and um, I mean, work on getting it out, not making it worse. (laughs) But one of the things I notice is that even if there is no pressure from my management, there's this there is a stigma Mm -hmm. and there's almost this kind of manly thing in me that's like, don't mess with this. Just keep delivering the right. donuts. Right. You know? So how much of it's in our head versus actually in the minds of our managers? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I think that's a huge part of it, right? And so that has a lot to do with with the way that, uh, that we get socialized as kids. So, you know, in my in my family, I'm just thinking thinking back to my personal experience. Um, I, I I always remember my my grandfather saying um, there are a lot of people in this world who are a lot smarter than me, but I can outwork anybody, right? Hmm. And that was sort of yeah. that mantra has sort of okay. gone across the generations, right? So, um, uh, uh, that's not a negative mantra, no. right? But when it when it affects other people, when yeah. it removes you from the things that are the most important in our lives, and I think the vast vast majority of people 
um, would say that their kids, um, their spouse or their significant other are the most important things in their lives, hmm. um, then then we run into a problem, right? And that's, I think, partially in the way that we're socializing our kids, the messages that we send them uh, early on, yeah. right? Like my grandfather telling me that story when I'm six. Yep. No, no, no. That's totally in your head now. Like, yeah, exactly. Well, or or some other person saying, hang on to every job you get because it could all be taken from you in a second. That's so right. These these little socialized, you know, these cultural things, these mores or I don't even know what you'd call them, a standard or a norm or something that you believe is true. It, it operates on you. Um, but then it's interesting, too, in the U.S., we are not leaders in – maternity and paternity leave we are we're we're way behind the curve it sounds like mm-hmm. and so what what roughly what percentage of uh companies organizations even allow or give maternity and paternity leave right so so some uh workplaces are are required um to do that under federal law so the family leave act that was passed in the 90s um, requires employers if they meet certain requirements. Um, the biggest one being um, the size of the firm that you work for. Uh, they would have to offer that leave to you legally. Um, that leave is not paid. Yeah. Um, in terms of paternity leave, what we know is that uh, one in five employers offers paid paternity leave. And that's just for what, a week or two? Yeah. So that's typically a, a, of any... Of any duration, right? So twenty percent so, of organizations offer probably, something. Offer yeah. something, right? Huh. And so you know, we've seen um, stories. Actually, they become big news stories because companies like Facebook or Amazon, yeah, um, have decided that they're going to offer um, both paid maternity and paternity leave. Um, of equal duration. Yeah. Um, Some are even employees. open-ended, indefinite, mm-hmm. however long you need. That's right. Yeah. Just if you if you want three months, take it, right. which is like – but in my head, I'm thinking, oh, boy, I'd be fired after three months. There's <laughs> no way. So even, again, if they offer it, exactly. you still have to get over your own head. Exactly. Or, you know, what, what, uh, what penalty am I going to pay for taking this? Yeah. Oh, I'll take it now, but I'll pay for it right. later. And that's not like a totally unfounded – Right. Uh, um, worry, right? So, I mean, if men are in tune to what we talked about earlier, that motherhood penalty, then, um, I mean, it's very clear to them that there's going to be a fatherhood penalty yeah. as well. Is this generational? Because it seems that I could see the generation above me who maybe, well, it's not even true anymore. Now my generation would be in the C-suites making these policies. But I, it seems like the next generation is going to more aptly and quickly adopt the idea that dads want to be dads too, and we got to equalize pay for women. We got to take away the penalties and make mm-hmm. it allowable for men to be just as accessible as a parent. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. Um, when you look at um, so students I have who are who are typically millennials, yeah, um, I mean, they that's the attitude that they bring into the classroom. Right is like, um, uh, I should for the for the ma- for the male students, um, I should be able to find a job, or I want to find a job where I can um, both make a, you know a good salary based on on the education I have and what I'm doing, but also provides me the opportunity to um, be with my kids, 
um, be with my spouse. Yeah. Um, have a life. Have a life, right? So I think I think to them, they they see the importance of of work life balance. I, I th- often think that we sometimes look at that and say, well, millennials are lazy or they're entitled. Um, I don't think that's necessarily what's happening. I think what they what they're seeing is they saw what their fathers were doing or yeah, their grandfathers were doing. doing. Yeah. yeah, and they they say, well, that's not. That's not the life I want, right? They remember their dad not being there. And, you know, I, I would have preferred my dad being there than yeah. that extra 5000 or $10,000 right. a year. Um, what would you say going forward? We have about a minute um, to just on the personal level to fathers, mothers, husbands, wives – to make sure that we just in our own lives, in our own home, we're, we're involving the father to the degree we can involve him. So I, I, think, I think what's um, important to, to, for couples to remember is um, that they should, they should have active conversations about these issues um, and, and talk about the importance of, of, the, of the father being involved in the lives of their kids and figure out ways that they can make that happen. Um, I think – you know, there's no one size fits all for families, obviously. And so if we can figure out ways within families to make these things work so dads can be involved and moms can um, not shoulder the entire burden of being the parent, yeah. then I think we'll all benefit from that. No, I think totally. And the rising tide raises all ships, right? Dr. Kevin Schaefer, thank you so much for your time and being with us again. Kevin is an associate professor of sociology at uh, the Department of Social Work here at Brigham Young University. And also, um, one of the things that uh, that you might want to focus on is go look up his article on theconversation.com, Why Dads Can't Be the Dads They Want to Be. That might be some fun reading for you and your spouse, especially if you're expecting, like Jeffrey Simpson. Stick with us, folks. We'll take a break. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. That is uh, the sound, which means we've got to give you some empty news. Matt Townsend news, of course. A woman, uh, 30 years ago, a woman in Islesworth, West London, bought an exceptionally sized ring she assumed was costume jewelry for $13 at a flea market. Now, after decades of wearing the ring daily, she's about to get $455,000 for the ring at Sotheby's auction in July. If it sells for its expected price, that's because the ring is actually a 26-carat cushion-shaped white diamond from the 19th century. The head of Sotheby's London Jewelry Department, Jessica Wyndham, called the ring um, a one-off windfall, an amazing find. According to the Evening Standard, the owners are incredibly excited. Anyone would be in a position, uh, be in, anyone would be in this position it's a life-changing amount of money. That is unbelievable. Do you think she's going to share any of that money f- with the people that she bought the ring from? No. <sighs> that was 30 years ago. Oh, 30 years ago. I don't even know these people. I smell a lawsuit. I <laughs> Somebody made a mistake. Hey, where's that where's that heirloom ring I gave you, honey? Oh, I hawked it for $13 at the that's crazy. Anyway, uh, it tells you, you need to go to the flea market. Check out the uh, rings there. We'll take a break, my friends. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. See, there's hope. There's hope at the flea market. 
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Hour number three of the program. Today, by the way, we're celebrating Say Something Nice Day. And I wanted uh, I wanted to say something nice to you, Jeffrey. <gasps> You're wearing that baby weight nicely. Hmm. It hardly looks like you're carrying it well. You're carrying. It hardly looks like you've you've gained any weight since your baby was coming. But based on our last hour, I know what you're trying to do is just be more a part of the the prenatal care of the baby. So right. This is sympathy weight. You've been trying to show sympathy to the baby's mother. Uh, any news on that front that you want to talk about? Um, no. She's four days overdue. It could happen Still at no any moment. Hmm. Terry, you've got everything locked and loaded in case she goes. Yeah, we're good. <laughs> <laughs> Terry will be delivering the baby. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> it's um, By the way, it's also Go Barefoot Day. So today's the day you kick your shoes off and start going barefoot. Just do it at your own house. Oh, yeah, those yeah, keep keep yours on. Keep your um what do they call those the shoes that everyone wears that Crocs? Crocs. Yeah. Keep your Crocs on. Mm. Those uh do put off quite an odor after you've been wearing them for a while. Just hose them out, you're fine. <laughs> if you if your shoes are like a petri dish, keep them on. None of us need that walking around the office. Hey, um, we got a lot to talk about today, a lot of empty news to cover. Plus, of course, um, we will be replaying an, an interview we did on why girls tend to have more anxiety than boys and what you can do about it, how to parent an anxious daughter. Uh, we'll get to all that fun. Of course, um, headlines with Terry South in just a minute and BYU Sports Nation will be joining us to talk about what's coming up on their show. I want to find out any predictions they have about the Warriors-Cavs game tonight. This is must-see TV. I'm going to a company party for my wife. I think that is trademarked, by the way. Oh, is it? This is – So what, what, you probably ought to see TV. <laughs> company party for your wife. My wife uh, is a PE teacher for our local elementary school. Please tell me the party's going to have a dodgeball game. I No, but I did hear they are bringing out the parachute. I know. Oh. So I've got to – I'm wearing my exercise clothes. You're going to so have to are, climb the rope? Yeah, i got to climb the rope and ring the bell. That'll gonna, take a night. Are you going to sneak your phone and kind of stream in the corner or Absolutely something? not. I will be nothing but devoted and paying attention to all of my wife's coworkers. I'm sorry. It will be wonderful. No. And then I'm going to fake a gallbladder uh, like, oh, flare, and go. then we got to get out of here. I got to get home to my Percocet. Yeah. And then really I'm going to go watch the game. And my boys will already be home watching it. See, there's the company party, and then there's your wife's company party. Yeah. Because, I mean, you don't know these people well. Mm-mm. No, and never every, everyone's trying to be nice, yeah. and you always have to. Oh, so what do you do for a living? And you have to explain. Uh, I always make stuff up. Yeah, me too. I can't tell you. I'm I'm with intelligence. I, t- the I tell them the job I had. Defense. The job I had three jobs ago. Yeah, UPS. Yeah, just UPS. And everyone's like, oh, okay. oh. 
Is that why you're wearing those brown shorts? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> if you do that. That's exactly why. Well, I'm excited. I don't know why you're wanting to put a damper on it because it's, it's going to be really exciting. Yeah, not, not believing that. No, good luck, Matt. There's here, my good thing for the day. Yeah, here's, yeah here's my nice thing for you. Yeah. Um, you are good at pretending like you want to go to your wife's work party. Oh, thank you. That was a nice thing you're to say. You're very good at that. That was, that was a very nice thing to say today. I'm not pretending. Is your wife aware of your true feelings? Oh, yeah. I wouldn't want to go to anything tonight. Hmm. So she already knows that. Like anytime she needs to get me out of the house, she already knows it's an uphill battle. I'm like, I could die. (laughs) Do you know how fragile my gallbladder is? (laughs) I've been working that thing like crazy. Hey, you know what's neat, though? Let me just tell you this. Uh, Three weeks into my whole gallbladder drama, Hmm. we still don't know what it is. Nice. Yeah, so I'm going to go have another test. Good. It's great. Maybe at some point they just need to open it up and look. Well, I... I Maybe poke at it a little I bit. I called on my surgeon and I'm like, he's like, we don't know what it is. I'm like, it's my gallbladder. I know that. I'm a doctor. And he looked at me like, yeah. But I said, do you want me to flare it up right now? I'll flare <laughs> it up right now. You can flare on demand, huh? Hand me those Funyuns. Yes. And I about pulled out a Funyun and that would set me off. Well, are you going to study for this test this time? I'm not good at studying. I'm not a good test taker. Mm. This one's going to – I think I'll be asleep through this next test. So <sighs> nothing to worry about. It's just my life. Not a big deal. Hey, in a minute too, we'll also talk about a woman that dressed up like a dinosaur to spook horses. Sounds about right. Yep. And uh, – you know, maybe not the nicest thing to do. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Ross Ulbrich, the accused mastermind behind the Underground Road, underground Silk Road website for the sale of illegal drugs to customers worldwide, failed to persuade a federal appeals court to overturn his conviction and life sentence. The three-judge panel cited the staggering $183 million of illegal drugs sold on the, on uh, Silk Road from 2011 to 2013, and a lower court's finding that it more like more than likely we'll see it more likely than not that Ulbrich arranged at least five murders for hire to protect his Silk Road anonymity. Wow, <laughs> they have no proof. Yeah, no proof. And right. that's what his that's what his lawyers were trying to fight for. We you know the you can't prove you any can't of this. prove this. And they go, eh, we kind of can because that's yeah. what you could purchase on the Silk Road. Anything illegal was there. It's all there on the Silk Road. There's a book I was I heard someone an author talking about just fascinating about. The lengths this guy went through to—it all started because he, he felt like you know drugs. If you want to take drugs, you should be able to take drugs. I mean, it's a free country, right? But then it turned into justifying everything else. Oh wow! And it just turned into a, a monster website that made a lot of money, and then he got arrested. Uh, other news these days: there's not a lot of a lot, a whole lot about flying that make a person grin. But if you're taking JetBlue in the future, there could be one reason to crack a smile. Your face might be able to be used as a boarding pass. What? The airline is testing facial recognition check-in for flights between Boston and Aruba next month. Apparently they have good fares. Um, this on this from CNN. <laughs> Passengers will be asked to stand before a kiosk that compares their face scan to their photo in the U.S. Customs database. That being whatever is on your passport. A screen will then tell the passengers when they can board. Do you see any problems with this type of a So this technology? is only from Boston to, to Aruba. Aruba. Yeah. I've been in Aruba uh-huh. and the only time I've ever had to like 
force my wife to do something was on the tarmac in Aruba because she did not want to board the plane we were supposed to go on to Curacao because it was a death coffin. Right. <laughs> and she's like, I'm not getting on that. I'm like, no, we got to get on that plane. I've got to speak. We got. Anyway, I, I see a problem with this. Yeah. So they're testing it. There, it might be something to speed up the process, make it less of a an ordeal for everyone yeah. to, to fly. Okay. So, yeah, Boston to Aruba. They apparently have, like I said, good <laughs> rates. Um, new video shows a deadly shootout involving two bounty hunters inside a Texas car dealership. The two bounty hunters were awaiting or waiting there for nearly four hours for fugitive Raymond Hutchinson. Ooh. When he arrived with what was believed to be his girlfriend, they approached him. Hutchinson tried to pull a gun from his waistband, and all three went for it. That's when Hutchinson started shooting. Cell phone video shows the moment the two bounty hunters tried to apprehend Hutchinson uh, in the car dealership. They approached with their guns. About 20 shots went off. The shots, the shootout shattered windows, sent customers scrambling. Hutchinson was killed along with the two bounty hunters. The 49-year-old had an outstanding warrant for a failure to appear on a first-degree drug charge in Minneapolis. The uh, Texas bounty hunters usually carry handcuffs and a gun but cannot pretend to be an officer. The owner of the car dealership told the AP that the two bounty hunters identified themselves as federal agents and uh, to the general manager and the receptionist. So they may have broke the rules, but all three are now dead. 20 shots fired out in this car dealership. The video is nuts because, you know, car dealerships are just glass. It's just glass everywhere. Offices everywhere, and all of a sudden all the guns start going off in these tiny rooms. Unbelievable. You know what? Dog. We need Dog the bounty hunter. This never would have happened with him. Made it happen. Finally, the spelling bee is going on. Yes, if you want to watch that, I believe it's televised. And you were today. you were talking about hiring a spelling coach. There were spelling coaches yesterday. Mm-hmm. The youngest participant is a six-year-old. What? Her name's Edith Fuller from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Oh, She's wow. the youngest speller in the ninety-year history of the National Spelling Bee, which allows contestants up to age fifteen. Uh, she had to spell words in round one, just as difficult as everyone else. Like more than 100 other spellers, her written spell, her uh, written spelling and vocabulary test scores weren't high enough to make the finals. So there's you have a written test with vocabulary and spelling words, right? Wow, yeah. And then you also take a uh, you have two rounds of those words, and you have to do well on all three, and they judge it that way. And yeah. four, 40 people from all the contestants move on. She was not one of them. Holy cow. But she uh, did spend the time on stage. She, uh, it's hard. Her, she's six years old. Yeah. Trying to have her sit in one spot. Yeah. You have kids sitting there for two hours mm. to go through the double rounds of you know, spelling, right? So her parents got some uh, – got the you know officials let the, the yeah. six-year-old stand off stage for a while and then come out when it was her turn type of thing. Her parents are – it says having a six-year-old sitting in one place is not inter- – and she can't interact with anybody. You have to sit there quietly yeah, for two can. hours. For a six-year-old, that's the equivalent of torture, her father says. Well, I found with Jeff, it's it's hard for a 30-something-year-old. Her mother said this is a girl who has difficulty sitting through a Disney movie. Oh, right? So she just fidgets. Girl. and she, So she, she was able to make it through, no problem. During a news conference, she mentioned that she hopes to invent a new kind of refrigerator. That's the little girl. Wow. In the first round, she, her word she was uh, she spelled was nice and nasty. The movement of plants in response to the onset of darkness. Really? Yeah, she nailed it. No problem. I don't think it's pronounced nice and nasty. Well, no, it's N-A-S-T-Y. Is the last. It's N-Y-C-T-I-N-A-S-T-Y. Wow. Yeah. So uh, like the Polish spellers who fare best in the beach, she repeated the word several times, calmly asked for the definition, and huh. language of origin. She got tap, uh, T-A-P-A-S, tap, tap it, it's Spanish. 
T-A-P-A-S. Tapas. Tapas, the second round, and didn't seem to have heard of the well, Spanish easy for small one. plates. And uh, But the applause let her know that she spelled the word correctly. So she spelled oh, both words correctly, didn't pass the written or the, the spelling what? test. So. What were you doing at six years old? Uh, playing with toys and watching cartoons. Yeah. It's probably uh, eating some tapas. Mm, that sounds really good. I They're actually small plates. When so. I was uh, – how old was I? I was well, 13. Well, that explains a lot. <laughs> uh, when I was 13, I a six-year-old beat me out in this spelling bee. Yeah, I'd purposely get out. I wasn't. I knew my limitations. There's yeah, no you're point like, in playing in this situation. So they go dog, and I go C A T, and then sit down. Yeah, see, that wasn't even close. Nope. You could at least put two G's. <laughs> just, just out of here. These spelling these spelling bees are a huge deal, though. I looked up some reviews of the elementary school that my uh, five year old is going to be going to, and one of the parents that gave it a negative review uh, criticized the. The school's handling of a spelling bee. Oh, that's really? why I got a negative review. Mm. Wow! So you're still going to go to that school, even though they have bad spelling bees? I'll think about it. That's intense. I mean, that's a lot easier than you know doing yeah. research and oh, yeah. looking for a different school. And you're just looking at the Google review, right? I think so. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. Those yeah. are fun. Random institution. Look it up on Google and see who went through the process. There's uh, what our Community swimming pool. You can, go, oh. you can go on Google, see the reviews. Don't go there. It's a four-star pool. I'm not sure what that Whoa. means. <laughs> I don't know. I think it means there's a it's, lot of chemicals in it. Four out of five. So. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's what that means. After the last, uh, yeah, num- number one incident, <laughs> they uh, they lost one of their stars. <laughs> Crazy time. Okay, we'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to be talking about why do girls tend to have more anxiety than boys and what we can do as parents. It's an interview we did with Leonard Sachs a few uh, months ago. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, have you noticed that your daughter tends to be a high-functioning overachiever in all that she does while your son just sits back and maybe he's more chill playing video games? Does your daughter seem to stress over the tiniest details while your son doesn't seem to care at all? This is a pretty common trend, and under your daughter's achievements, trophies, and awards, She may have a lot of anxiety bottled up as well. Why is it that girls tend to have more anxiety than our boys? Dr. Leonard Sachs, a psychologist and a practicing family physician, rejoins us on the show today today to talk about um, and to help us recognize where our daughter's anxiety may be coming from. Dr. Leonard Sachs. Well, Sachs, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for inviting me. Great to have you. Why? Okay, first of all, I guess statistically, girls do have more anxiety than boys. That's right, and that's, that's a really uh, robust finding, meaning it's a big, big effect. Because, uh, you know, I was looking at some of the comments people wrote on my article, and they said, well, that's kind of a stereotype. Well, whether you want to call it a stereotype or not, it's a true statement that girls in the United States are much more likely to be anxious hmm. compared with boys from the same home, from the same demographic. Why? What is it about? Well, I think there's a bunch of factors that uh, contribute. Uh, it's always been the case that girls have been a little more likely to be anxious than boys. But that gap has widened very dramatically, uh, really in the last 10 years. And I think one factor playing into that is social media. Uh, 
and the way that kids use social media. And again, we got a lot of good research on this, which I cite. Uh, so, for example, you look at kids posting photos on Instagram or, or uh, sharing photos on Snapchat. Boys are typically sharing photos showing something they're doing, or they go to the football game and take a, a, a picture of the game or the pretty cheerleader at the game. Uh, girls go to the same football game, and they're taking photos of themselves at the games. They're mm. much more likely to take selfies, and then they go home and Photoshop those selfies. Now, if you don't like Jacob's photo of the pretty cheerleader, he doesn't care. But if you don't like Emily's photo of Emily, she's going to take it more seriously. So girls tend to be much more invested in their photos, tend to be much more invested in their social media sites, and that really puts girls at risk. And this, again, leads right to the job of parents. You need to govern and guide what your kids are doing online. You need to know what they're doing with their phones, uh, and, and most parents don't. And I tell, kids, I tell parents, look, if you're going to let your kid have a phone, You've got to put some software on it, like My Mobile Watchdog or NetNanny Mobile, so that every photo they take goes immediately to your phone and your laptop, and you tell them, I will see every photo you take. If you don't want me to see it, don't take it. Uh, this is the job of the parent. It's not reasonable to put this burden on a 14-year-old girl when her friends say, hey, I'll take pictures of you, you take pictures of me, taking our clothes off. What's the girl supposed to say? Oh, I don't want to do that. Right. And my modesty. You have to allow her to say, I can't do that because my parents have this app on my phone. Hmm. Make it easy for your daughter to do the right thing. Is it um, – because looks and appearance are also – it's such a big, bigger deal, it almost seems like, for our young women than our young men. Well, and indeed, social media is more toxic to girls than it is to boys because uh, with girls, it's all about who's hot and who's cute, and who looks good in a bikini. And again, that's the whole point of my, my book, The Collapse of Parenting, that parents need to be in charge. Uh, and again, we didn't have Instagram even 10 years ago. So right. parents today are not sure how to deal with this. And uh, Emily's upstairs in her bedroom with the door closed with her cell phone, and the parents have no idea what's going on. It's the parents' job to govern, as I said, what kids are doing, and to give kids an excuse to do the right thing. Because mm. really, you, I, I just look at my, I have six kids, and I, I look at all of the, especially, I guess, uh, 14 and under, um, the, the, their, their practices are so interesting in, in how, uh, like how good all the girls look in every one of their pictures versus the boys. And a lot of the guys, I sit there and I wonder, why, what are you bringing to the equation other than you're an 11-year-old or 12-year-old jock that might be able to throw a ball? But I also look at it, too, and I think, man, that guy's lucky that he doesn't have to worry about so much about his image. Well, the boys are much more invested in the video games. Yeah. And if you're an 11-year-old or 14-year-old boy in the United States, uh, one way you can raise your status in the eyes of the other boys is to be all, the first guy to finish all the missions in Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> which incidentally is a, is a terrible game uh, where right is wrong and wrong is right. And we have good research showing that boys who play these games, it changes them over time. They become more selfish, less honest, less patient, and the effect is large. Uh, and again, most parents don't know this research. That's the point of my book, Boys Adrift, is to share that research with parents. Uh, because again, parents need to govern and guide what boys are doing on their video games. Because uh, again, when, when you're uh, son's friend says, hey, come on over and, uh, and we'll play Grand Theft Auto. 
uh, is the is the 12-year-old boy supposed to say, well, no, researchers have found that playing that <laughs> game can cause boys to be more selfish. You have to allow him to say, hey, my parents won't allow me to, or the parents need to step in and say, I'm sorry, my son's not allowed to go to your house because we don't allow him to play those games. Yeah. So it really is parenting um, where we, we've got to pick up our game on a variety of levels. Is yeah. it is it true – I've heard the old adage, anxious uh, anxious moms make anxious daughters. Is that true? My short answer is no. Uh, the longer answer is, of course, it's, there's some truth to that. Uh, you cannot teach a virtue which you yourself do not possess. Uh, but there's been an explosion in anxiety among American girls in the last 20 years. Uh, so if it were the case that uh, uh, moms who are relaxed have daughters who are relaxed, we wouldn't see this. Uh, there's something going on in American culture that is causing uh, kids, and especially girls, to become, to become more anxious. And you cannot blame this on their parents' genetics. Uh, again, that's a major focus of my book, The Collapse of Parenting. Why is it the case that kids today, especially girls, are so much more likely to be anxious compared with kids in the same demographic, in the same neighborhood 20 years ago? Right. Uh, you can't blame this on the parents' genetics. Or even just and, chemistry, right? We try to blame uh, a lot of anxiety on chemistry. We do. Uh, but that cannot explain the difference between 2003 and 2016. Right. Interesting. And in fact, let's do this. Let's take a break. Come back. We're speaking with Dr. Leonard Sachs. You can find out more about him on his website, leonardsachs.com. And he's talking about a variety of books. And those um, those can all be found. The Collapse of Parenting, Girls on the, on the Edge, Boys Adrift, Why Gender Matters, all wonderful resources for you as a parent. We'll take a break. Uh, this interview with Dr. Uh, Leonard Sachs. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On air with us right now, Dr. Leonard Sachs. He's a psychologist and practicing family physician, also the author of many books. Um, on the, His latest is The Collapse of Parenting, Girls on the Edge, Boys Adrift, wonderful resources for all of us. And today we're talking about why girls tend to have more anxiety than the boys do and why sometimes we just kind of call, we think our boys are just lazier. Um, so, uh, Dr. Sachs, welcome back to the program with us. Thank you. Is it uh, so we can kind of address the boys are lazier idea? Are they lazier? Well, when you look at who are the high achievers in American schools, who who's the valedictorian, who's editing the school newspaper or the yearbook, on uh, all those parameters and on many others, there's now a large and growing gender gap with boys falling farther and farther behind girls. And I'm actually old enough to remember 40 years ago when it was the other way around, mm. and there was a lot of concern about girls. Uh, you know, I graduated from Shaker Heights High School in, in northern Ohio, and I was the editor of the school newspaper, and the editor before me was a boy, and the editor before him was a boy, and on and on and on. And there was a lot of concern in the 1970s, you know, why aren't girls editing the school newspaper? Why are girls never the valedictorian? We flipped completely in the other direction. Uh, but there's, uh, and, and, you know, uh, some people will say, okay, so what's the problem? Uh, so 
so why is that a problem that things have swung the other way? Uh, there's a bunch of reasons why it's a problem. One is what's called educational assortative mating, uh, which is a fancy way of saying that uh, when a, if a girl's going to marry, she wants to marry a man who has equal or greater educational attainment. And this is not true for boys. Hmm. A boy who's earned a four-year degree is very happy to marry a girl who hasn't earned a four-year degree if she has other qualifications. Right. Pretty, for example. Uh, but that's not true for girls. If a girl has earned a four-year degree, she's looking for a man who has at least achieved the same as she has, and there are no longer enough good men to go around. You look at who earned a four-year degree last year in the United States, women outnumbered men by nearly three to two. Who earned a master's degree in the United States last year, women outnumbered men by more than three to two. And so there's a dramatic drop in the birth rate among uh, North America, among um, American uh, white people who speak English at home. Hmm. Now, the overall birth rate has not dropped as much because uh, the United States welcomes immigrants, and uh, immigrants who don't speak English at home don't have this weird virus of lazy boys uh, who are not keeping up with their sisters. But white people who speak English at home, it's now very common uh, to find families where the girls working harder and earning better grades than her brother. And is that, again, I guess that is part of the culture, right? It's the... It's, it's, well, it's not just... It's very specific to the contemporary American culture. Yeah, right. Uh, 50 years ago, Sam Cooke had a number one hit song in this country. He sang, Don't Know Much About History. Mm-hmm. He sang, Now, I don't claim to be an A student, but I'm trying to be, because maybe by being an A student, baby, I could win your love for me. He goes on to mention French geometry and trigonometry as subjects in which he's going to try to work harder to earn an A instead of a B because he believes that by being an A student, he will raise his status in the eyes of the pretty girl. That was American culture Hmm. one or two generations back. It is not American culture for English speakers today. You cannot imagine Akon, Eminem, 50 Cent, Justin Bieber, or Justin Timberlake (laughs) singing a song about how they're going to work harder to get an A instead of a B in in trigonometry. It would be a joke. Interesting. Uh, The culture has changed in ways that have uh, disengaged boys from academic achievement. And and is the culture, because, I mean, culture has to be, you know, um, introduced. I mean, it is cultural, except it's also seems like the culture is now raising our children more than we are. Parents uh, need yeah. to in, uh, maybe that, insert that, themselves back in. The collapse of parenting, which is that parents need to step in, turn off the device, and prioritize the family. The, the family has to be more important than the video game, than Instagram, than Snapchat. Wow. And I guess uh, it's, it doesn't serve us to call you know, girls just anxious and guys just lazy. Um, it's, it, we have to address the real issues underneath all yeah, of this. There's nothing hardwired about any of this. Right. Again, in American culture it. two generations ago, the, the, uh, the cultural staple then was the giggly, carefree teenage girl in shows like Gidget starring Sally Field. Right. Uh, because, in fact, anxious girls were rare in the United States two generations ago. They are common today. There's nothing hardwired about this. It's cultural. <clears throat> and again, parents have step back, step away. They're not sure what to do. And the point of my book, The Collapse of Parenting, is to empower those parents to show them how to make family the first priority to create a different culture in the household that's a healthier culture than the, what kids find on the Internet or social media. 
What are some quick solutions, just things that you can throw yeah, out? I got uh, a bunch. Yeah, give, give us some that, that parents can do no, for anxiety no and for the, the lazy no factor. No cell phones in the bedroom. No cell phones in the bedroom. Turn off the device. Put it in the charger, which stays in the parents' bedroom. No devices at the dinner table. Uh, listen to your child. Talk to your child. No earbuds, no headsets in the car. When you're in the car, that's time for uh, you to listen to your child, and your child should be listening to you, not to Justin Bieber. When you make a vacation, your child is not allowed to, to bring her best friend along, or otherwise it's her and her friend going up on the chairlift, and all you've done is to subsidize a very expensive play date. <laughs> Vacations are for family and kids to reconnect. No best friends on the vacation. That's such a good point. How many times? I mean, part of it is just I want my kids to be busy. I don't want to have to babysit them. But that's the point. You're supposed to no, parent them. I don't them. think that's fair to the parents I know. What most parents are saying is, I want my kids to be happy. Right. And they say that they'll be happier if they bring along their best friend. And what I tell those parents is you need to educate desire. Because uh, if you do not educate desire, what, causes kid, what gives kids pleasure is going to end up being cotton candy, uh, video games, and social media. But that's not real happiness. You need to educate desire so that kids develop a longing for something higher and deeper than cotton candy and video games. They're not born knowing that. It's the job of the parent to educate desire, among other things. That's, again, the, my book, of the, the Collapse of Parenting. Yeah. Is it um, – do, do we need to – I mean, I guess we've determined or we, it seems like we've expected someone else to do a lot of this work for us as Well, parents. again, so many parents are unsure of their authority that they now often look to the school uh, to do this job. And this is, cannot be the job of the school. Uh, it's, it's too big a burden. Uh, it is primarily the, the job of the parent to instruct their child in right and wrong, uh, to educate desire, as I said. And I hear from so many school leaders who say that the parents are expecting us to teach the kid you know, what it means to be a lady and a gentleman, and they're, they're upset that the, that the, uh, the kids are behaving uh, inappropriately and rudely, um, but then they won't support us. Uh, when we try to discipline kids, they swoop in like attorneys, right. uh, mounting a defense. <laughs> uh, so parent, it's the job, first and foremost, of the parents to teach right and wrong uh, and to work with the school, to support the school in... Uh, building virtue and character. Well, it's great advice. Again, Dr. Leonard Sachs, thanks for being on the show and your great work there. Um, Appreciate your time. Thanks again for inviting me. You bet. Go check out his website, leonardsachs.com, leonardsachs.com, and uh, and, and those books as well. Uh, Four wonderful ones, um, Boys Adrift, Girls on the Edge, Why Gender Matters, The Collapse of Parenting, Wonderful resources there. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. Visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's going to be on their show at the top of the hour. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Wrapping it up. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Yes, it's that time, folks, to uh, head down to our good friends at BYU Sports Nation and find out what's coming up on their show in just 12 short minutes from now. Hello, gentlemen. What is up, Matty? What's happening? How's life? Today's a big day. It's our 1,000th episode. Holy cow. You guys count. We count. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, Thank the you. crowds. Wow, Thank you, you've got a big crowd. They're a little slow in the pickup, but they're really, they're really good. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very we, much. We are going to have a fun show. It's already been very fun on Twitter. Everyone's being super nice. Uh, but we got a cake. We got balloons. We got some of our former uh, you know, student producers in the house. We are going to wow. take a walk down memory lane. Holy cow. Uh, we're gonna, we have a bunch of shout-outs from people uh, that have been on the show, athletes, coaches, friends of the program. It's going to be a great day. It's going to be who? a great day. Says who? Says Donald Trump. Hey, um, this is kind of exciting. A thousand shows. I mean, you guys don't look like you've done more than 500. You're so young and fresh. Oh, thank you. We appreciate that. Sometimes I feel like I've done 10,000 shows. (laughs) Depends on the day. I, I I don't want to brag, but I'm at 1148 according to an app. 1,148. Yeah. But, yeah, uh, baby. But only about 30 of them are quality. So, wrong. Uh, oh, sorry. Wrong. Um, you guys, honestly, that is, that's, that's huge because yours are also TV. I mean, the majority of those were TV as well. First six months were on radio. Yeah. And then, uh, then we were on TV after that. So we started the show Labor Day, September 2nd, 2013. Yeah. Holy cow. Um, so I remember a, it's been an amazing experience. I remember when before you guys went to TV. Do you remember they you guys went and got all that Botox and all the you know ab we sculpting? We had to invest in our looks yeah. at that point. That was before then. You guys were a little snaggletooth, a little you had some issues, but yeah, I only had. Four well, we teeth still have time. issues. <laughs> we got lots of those. Hey, I got to ask you because tonight's the big Warriors Cavs game. Uh, are you going to make any predictions? I'm going to take the Warriors in Game One, mm. or do you want an entire? Well, let's prediction? let's let's do an entire one, and then I'll hold you guys accountable to it. <sighs> Unless you're going to do this on your show, but I don't think you do. Golden State in six. Really? I'm going to enjoy the series as much as I don't honest, want like, that to happen, Matt. That's why? What I why think don't will you? Happen. Because okay. I, I like the conversation of LeBron James being the greatest of all time, and yeah. if he can beat Goliath two years in a row. Mm-hmm. Then that whole Michael Jordan versus LeBron James debate just gets Gone. that much yeah. more interesting, doesn't ah, it? I like it. I like it. Golden State in six. And Jerem, you're you're going to abstain? I think I'm yeah, I think I just want to enjoy the series, to be honest. Well, can you not do both? I, you're right, I can. But I just <laughs> I don't know. I, think I don't either. The Genesis. I think it's gonna go seven. I have Ooh, no but... idea. Every, the Warriors obviously favored. They're so star heavy. Yet I don't I don't give I won't outrule LeBron James in the Cavs. No way. I just think I think it could be great. Like, if the Warriors win in five, I won't be shocked. If the Cavs win in seven, I won't be shocked. What if uh, What if the Clippers win? If the Clippers win, that would be quite shocking. See? Shocking okay. In a that was easy. Yeah. Yes. It's easy to shock you. Hey, um, okay. I, I like this. This is good. I, we're going to come back and uh, at some point and, and see how you did, Spencer. And Jerem, um, someday you ought to run for office. <laughs> Just a night. Hey, by the way, uh, I'm sitting at home um, resting my gallbladder, and um, I, I call him uh, Jiggly, by the way. And he's, uh, I get a knock at the door, and my wife answers, and it's somebody going door to door for, is it Tanner Ainge? To try, that, yeah, to, that's Danny's, Danny's son to try to get enough to try to get us to sign a petition to put him on the ballot. There you go. So, so we obliged. There you go. So uh, I think I think the Angels owe me an interview now. He's a part of uh, you know one of the first families of uh, BYU 
BYU basketball. Sports. Hey, uh, the you, BYU basketball player. Now that you've done a thousand, and today's the thousandth show. Well, we haven't done a thousand yet. Well, you've done nine hundred ninety-nine. Got to cross that threshold, right? <laughs> That's that means today's a big show. So bigger than normal. I mean, you've, you you already mentioned everything you're going to be doing, all the fans, all the tweets, all that fun. Yeah. And, and what else is on the show that is just going to push us over the edge? For your first, here's the thing: we're thousand. not sure everything that's going to happen in we, the show. Yeah, we don't exactly Ooh. know. Are there surprises? Yes, we're told there are surprises. <gasps> oh, must see TV. And we haven't seen kind of this walk down memory lane. Hmm. We haven't seen the shoutouts. So we're, we're you excited. just we have a cake. We have balloons. How, how big is the cake? Does the cake would the cake? How feed big is this cake? My team, Caitlin. How big would you say this cake is? Normal size. I uh, what? Oh, brother. It's a, it's a 14 by 17. Hey, is Caitlin playing in the softball game tonight? Is uh, Jeff Simpson's wondering if you're playing in the softball game tonight, Caitlin. She doesn't know. Tell her to bring some icy <laughs> hot. she's on the 10-day deal with the uh, new yeah. foot. If she, if she is coming, tell her to bring some icy hot because his legs are killing hot. him. They say bring some icy hot, Caitlin. Hey, uh, <laughs> oh, I can't have cake. Darn it. All right, whatever. Not just anymore. Make a cake, whatever. Yeah. Okay, so you, a lot of this is just going to be a big surprise to you. Yes, and we like it that way, so we can react like you know as natural. It's as like possible. a game. Yeah, you know? it's, yeah, it's just, just react, a natural baby. reaction. Apparently, too, we are going to be showing BYU baseball um, here in in the at BYU Broadcasting, so people don't have to work; they can just go watch BYU baseball. Hey, ESPN three or watch ESPN, whatever you want to call it. It's going to be available. You can also listen on BYU Radio and the BYU Radio app. Are you calling it? I wish. Oh, that would be Actually, cool. Actually, no, because then I wouldn't be here for show 1,000. Oh. They, they would have just done show 1,000 tomorrow. <laughs> we just... We just... We just push it back. Yeah, we yeah, just move no, back a we show. We are the ones that are counting. That's right. Yeah, whatever. I and mean, we made up our number. You guys can make up yours. What? Say what? Okay, so it sounds like a good show, a lot of surprises, and you are 1,000 shows into this thing. How, do you want to give us a prediction on how many more shows to go? I'm going with no, 5,000. we're just going to enjoy the ride. Yeah. That's right. We don't, we, let's not get all Mike and Mike on it, okay? That's it, yeah. You don't want to <laughs> turn into Mike and Mike show that probably has 5,000 episodes. A long, what? How many years did they go? 12, 20? Where did they go? Oh, wow. Long time. Yeah, I don't know that I want to do anything hey, that long. We, we're, yeah, 1,000 episodes, we're super happy. Okay, well, we're proud of you. Uh, you are the highlight of our day. Oh, thank you. And may the force be with you. 1,000 shows, folks. In five minutes from right now, the joy and excitement starts with BYU Sports Nation. Stick with it. Spencer and Jerem, you're not going to want to miss that. That really is cool. And a cake? Uh, Don bought me a cake for my birthday one year here. Really? Yeah, brought it right in during the show. You know, uh, he brought one in this year, too, but you weren't here, so we ate it. Yeah, I think I was actually checking out of the hospital that day. That I hope you enjoyed was, it. That cake was so good. Do you know what I would give for a piece of cake right now? I'd uh, give my Your gallbladder? Yeah. I'd give it in a second. I After I left the hospital, I went and had some cake because they had a cake. I think it was for my birthday, but we never celebrated it. And... I didn't eat any of the icing because that's that would that's fattening. I just ate the cake part, and then I found out the cake has fat in it. Yes, and that sent me back to the hospital. Mm. And by the time we got to the parking lot, uh, my gallbladder had kicked back in, and it was all good again. 
Well, be sure to give us the heads up on when we can enjoy cake. I was thinking no. of bringing in donuts for tomorrow Ugh. because tomorrow no. is National Donut Day, and I thought, ah, oh, well, no. I, we no. can't do that. We can't do that. Uh, let's do this. Maybe by the time you have your baby and you come back, we'll buy donuts and then we'll celebrate. I'm not even sure when this baby's coming. I'll tell you. It could be, you know, I might be waiting as long as your surgery. Yeah. Heavens. To get here. Maybe what would be neat? A twofer. What if I could deliver my gallbladder and your wife could deliver your baby boy? Bada boom, bada bing. Wow. We, I, you be have. a joyous day in both You have households. little Liam and I have Jiggly, the gallbladder. <laughs> oh, that'd be so cute. Hey, um, I got to tell you this story. A woman dressed as a dinosaur to spook horses turns herself in. This is crazy. Listen to this. A woman uh, who police say wore a dinosaur costume and spooked carriage horses in South Carolina officially turned herself in. Charleston police spokesman Charles Francis said in the statement that 26-year-old Nicole Wells is charged with disorderly conduct and wearing a mask or disguise. Francis says Wells was dressed in an orange Tyrannosaurus Rex costume. Those are the scariest dinosaurs there are. If it was brown, I could see her getting away yeah, with that. Yeah, but an orange one? Mm. Mm. And oh, horses hate orange T-Rexes. Wow. She's got great sound. Yeah. Um, apparently, she goes up to the horses as they're pulling a carriage and then she starts growling, and the driver of the carriage was like, hey, get out of here, you T-Rex. <laughs> and then sometimes the horses get spooked. I think that's what the cavemen said to the original dinosaurs, too. Oh, yeah. No, that's, that's why they're extinct. And uh, the driver, by the way, it, so the horse was spooked. The driver was thrown from the carriage, and the carriage ran over his leg. Ooh. See, that's why she had to be stopped. So the horse and the passengers were not injured, but the police said, uh, you know, they had to catch the lady and she turned herself in. Well, good for her for doing that, for owning up to that. Yeah. Way to be honest in your uh, deviant behavior. Good stuff. Hey, our hero of the day uh, is Army Staff Sergeant Estevan Asokar. Said he always joked with his coworkers that he would be the first person to rescue someone in a situation like this. Check this out. Asokar, his wife, and young children went to Ohio for a concert. On Monday night around dusk, they were headed home to West Pitson, Pittston. They were on I-80 eastbound in Clearfield County when the car just ahead of them hit a deer. The car managed to pull over onto the narrow shoulder and started filling up with smoke. It got to be a real movie scenario where you see people struggling. They couldn't breathe, Asokar said. The vehicle wouldn't open, and I did everything I could to try to, to find something to bust the window. The staff sergeant, sergeant, uh, the staff sergeant pulled, every, uh, uh, pulled it all off, pulled them out on the shoulder of the road, Rescued the husband, the wife, and everyone in the car, and eventually, and actually pulled them away uh, before another tra- truck ran into the car. So there you have it, Army Staff Sergeant Estevan Asokar. You're the hero of the day. That's the show, my friends. Until tomorrow, make it a great one. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.